0: Hello, and welcome to the Ryan Watts Life Coaching Podcast. You can find us online at ryanwattslifecoaching.com forward slash success to get your free 25-question personal success assessment. I'm so glad that you're here, and due to the holiday, happy Labor Day to you all. Um, We are going to do a replay. This is actually from another podcast feed that I once had, but it is a great conversation with Michael Benton. Uh, He is not only a professor... Uh, an expert, if you will, on stories and uh, psychological narratives. Uh, He is a genius and a good friend. Uh, Michael, I miss you. And, uh, man, we got to connect soon. But anyway, um, enjoy this wonderful podcast.
1: I'm originally from the West Coast, San Diego, primarily, but also lived in Oregon, uh, you know, in different places. Um, Then, I left the West Coast because I couldn't couldn't do college. You know, I was a high school dropout construction worker, wanted to go to college, and so I left the West Coast, went to the Midwest and the Mideast, and went all the way up to the PhD, and then became a professor. Uh, A big pivotal moment was um, learning about social movements and the way that they use narrative, and then also studying uh, cultural studies, popular culture at Bowling Green State University, which got me to think about our popular entertainments and becoming a professor and teaching peace studies where i started to think about it in a global way how we construct narratives in a much more vast uh, aspect and of course as you know i teach film studies you know which keeps me very active in thinking about these things as well as argument rhetoric in my writing classes for my students and try to get them to think about how they they you know consume and uh, have stories placed upon them but also how they can restory their world in a sense
0: that was very concise <laughs> that, was that was off the top of my head <laughs> that, was, that was good man wow there's there's a lot there one of the things that jumped out at me there was your your, your interest in social movements kind of changed the track for you over to a more scholastic path if you will
1: Talk it about did radically it it radically changed me and um it it really Uh, emphasizes for me the power of a liberal education. You know, sometimes we forget, you know, because everything's so, you know, get jobs, do this, you know, make money, which, you know, hey, everyone likes to make money. Everybody likes to have a secure job. I'm totally behind that, and I think we do a disservice if we're not doing that for our students. But at the same time, we're also teaching them to be citizens of the world. And I was an undergraduate at uh, Eastern Illinois University, and I was gonna be an accountant. Uh it's because everybody told me that's where I'd make money. And I was good at math. I always had been good at math. And uh I took a class. I, I was required to take this class, you know, I was like very resistant. You know, my advisor said, You've got to take this class to satisfy, you know, a slot on your degree. And I was like, Okay, whatever. Um, what's left? And it was a history of social movements. And I went into that class very blind and kind of ignorant of a lot of things. You know, I knew the basic things that they teach us. You know, you have MLK Day. You know, you know there was a civil rights movement. We know that there was, uh, you know, long struggles for various groups within our society. But I, I really had no idea. And it just hit me like a, a ton of bricks. You know, I, I was fascinated because we watched a lot of documentaries of people out in the streets, people fighting for change and saw, you know, how they started to challenge dominant narratives. A huge influence during this time and a huge influence for me from that time onward and continuing, even though he sadly passed away, it was Howard Zinn. Um, I was intratu- introduced to his histories, you know, his people's histories. And he got me thinking about, you know, from a working class perspective, uh how the stories are constructed to kind of eliminate our reality sometimes. You know, I grew up in a construction family, um, you know, lower lower working class, you know, moving up into the middle class in, you know, later time. You didn't see those realities. And, in fact, I would hear professors talk in their classes that, that literally were erasing, you know, their things or talking about these people as if they were ignorant. Howard Zinn reverses that, as well as many of the major figures in these movements that we're studying. You know, they were going on the street and they were going talking to these people and they were, you know, working with them. To affect change Not doing it for them But empowering them to do this And once again Storytelling was very powerful If you think about someone like Woody Guthrie Who goes around and sings songs You know that's a form of storytelling right If you yeah. think about the wobbly The IWW uh, brave, militant union people That went around the nation When they were killing them and locking them up And or deporting them And you know they would tell stories to To unite people Um, I think this is an important skill for us to remember, especially as people feel more disempowered in this world. You know, they feel as if, you know, our politicians don't speak for us. Mm -hmm. They have a doubt in authorities of of various types, experts. Um, They don't trust the media. Well, we need to start learning those stories. The switch for you was that
0: the, the dominant narratives, as you said, were kind of like those were those involved characters, that you weren't familiar with. They were distant characters. And then all of a sudden there's this other narrative, which were characters of the working class that were very, all of a sudden they were very relevant. They were the main characters in your life, right? And so- You had heard, grown up and you'd heard professors talk about, um, you know, those, those characters that you were familiar with as kind of characters without humanity, not main characters, right? They were just kind of the B characters. The story wasn't about them. And then Howard Zinn comes along and really has this narrative with, no, 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 the main character is the working class.
1: Yes, I should add a, a huge thing that Howard Zinn taught me or got me to think about was the myth of objectivity. You know, that that when we we demand that people be objective, that people be free of bias, that that always serves the interest of, of those that are in the dominant power structure. Um, he has that, that famous saying that becomes his autobiography, you can't stay neutral on a moving train. You know, the word, words you say, I'm not going to move, but you're going along with that train. You're being swept along the tide of history. Yeah. And so it also you know, kind of pushed against the notion that I was being taught in my history classes. And I later became a media scholar, you know, within say journalism that, you know, we're objective, you know, we don't have an opinion. We don't have a politics. In fact, we see journalists being persecuted right now for having an opinion. You're like, really? (laughs) They're human. They have opinions. Um, So yes, uh, once again, radically changed that. Um, Later, uh, strangely enough, I once again was forced to do this when I was as a Ph.D. student. I needed money, you know, and I wasn't forced like, you know, to get into my head. But I was I was required to do it if I wanted to eat um, and I was working on my dissertation. And so I went and worked over in the business department, which at that time seemed, you know, like an alien land to me and, and almost like the enemy because I was being, you know, uh, wrapped in Marxist narratives at the time, which, you know, uh, was good and bad. Um So I went over and worked in the business department helping to uh do their journals. And it was an organizational theory, which is a, a branch that looks at how organizations operate and, you know, the broader issues around that. And the people that were running the journal I was working for were very interested in storytelling as narrative within organizations. And once again, that began to change the way I thought about these things because I got to see, you know, these great theorists within organizational theory, you know, talking about what happens when you're, you're in a workplace and you're not able to voice your concerns, you know, say if it's something's dangerous. Or if there's problems, or if there's an extreme top-down structure, you know, where they just silence people. And these people are all in the business world, and they were saying, no, this is not the way to run a business. You've got to involve people if you want, you know, a dynamic productive business. And once again, you know, they would would literally say that people that do not learn how to understand stories, people that are unable to communicate their stories, these people are defenseless within the world you know, the broader ramifications of the world. And it it started to push me to start thinking about, you know, different disciplines and becoming much more interdisciplinary. So as you know, I started, you know, paying attention to things like narrative therapy, you know, I, I've suffered from trauma in my life and things like that, you know, and started to learn to listen to my own stories, you know, the stories of my body, you know, the stories that people tell me about what is sane and what is insane, you know, and the problems with that.
0: You brought up a very interesting point there that I hadn't really, I've thought about it, but I haven't put it in that language. It occurred to you that there were people who didn't have the tools to tell their story the way they saw it. And so something in that empowered you.
1: Yes, absolutely. And once again, you know, I always always think, you know, I haven't always lived this, of course, and, you know, we, we all have bad problems, but, you know, within our world, oftentimes we're encouraged to look at the differences between things. And I always want to look at, the, the connections, you know, um, in my critical theory classes, I may butcher this word, but it's something like rapprochement, um, you know, it's it's an ideal of bringing two opposing ideals or, you know, ideals together, almost yeah. like a linking, you know, say like a train where you have, have the different uh, parts of the train linked together. Yeah. And, you know, so we've got the social movements saying the importance of stories Then I'm looking at the business world, which should be different, you know, in a certain sense saying the same thing. Um, so yes, you know, bringing together these stories, thinking about them, seeing them from different angles, much like an artist would, yeah. you know, you know, the first thing you do in class in art class, you know, if you're drawing, you put an apple down you walk around it, you look at the different sides of it, you know, how does, how does the environment look different if you're up at the 16th floor than it does from the first floor? How does it look different if you're, you know, if you're the worker that's, you know, working, you know, say doing the plumbing, and, you know, how the world looks from the person that's outside, you know, standing above you and paying you, you know, these different relationships are always affecting and changing, you know, the way that we see the world. So, you know, starting to teach the peace studies later, you know, when I became a professor, also radically, you know, linked up with these. And it comes from like political theory, you know, where you start thinking about ethics and politics. You know, how are the stories framing the way that we perceive the world? You know, we can look at any issue in the world right now and start to see from different viewpoints and also always thinking about that frame, you know, because news stories, politicians, preachers, professors, right, whoever, you know, psychoanalysts or counselors, they're framing a certain understanding of the world. And we do that. What's in the picture and what's outside the picture is extremely important, you know. Um, always trying to think that way and trying to question that. Um, I think if we can do that very productively with stories.
0: My understanding of what you said initially, I, I was thinking, and correct me if I'm wrong, I was thinking you were saying more like it was an educational or just like a um, something internal, something in the individual that allowed them not to be able to tell the stories. And maybe you were referencing that, but perhaps it was more that the dominant narrative, if you will, just kind of snuffed out their ability to tell the story. So it was kind of a more of a systematic thing. So I guess my question is: is when you when you said originally why you were inspired to go into this, you were talking about Zen and what and whatnot. Was it more um, the individual, or was it more that you saw a systematic problem? Which of those do you think was the greater uh, deterrent?
1: You know, when I first had had that class on social movements and started first learning about social movements it was a very individualistic experience, you know, yeah. like a lot of, a lot of the students that, that I work with, you know, when they I, I give them a lot of freedom to to explore what they want in our argument classes. And, but I always hear, and I always see, you know, this, this combination of just wonder and anger, you know, and I kind of felt that way, you know, I was open to this, these new ways and these new histories, but I was angry, you know, I was in my early twenties, and nobody had told me about these things. I felt literally that it was hidden from me. Mm-hmm. And it really irritated me a lot. Um, but, you know, the, the the kind of hope and and more optimistic viewpoint of it was and seeing that there were collectives that were, that were working, that were struggling to change these narratives. And so that made it a much more broader uh, communal or collective aspect for me rather than just that individualistic. Aspect, and yeah. I, I should mention, if if we're mapping out, you know, the, Michael's life of stories, <laughs> we can't ignore the fact that I grew I grew up fundamentalist Christian, yeah. and you know had an all encompassing uh, story that that nightly t- nicely not to insult anybody, you know, that's not not my intent. I, I'm not anti religion, but you know we do have to recognize that that when a person is within that environment, everything's tied up in a nice little bow. You know, I had, I had complete certainty about everything, even where I was going after I died. And when that disappeared, you know, that, that left a, what would we call a void, you know, uh, screaming chaos in a certain sense.
0: And so I guess looking at it from more of like a, a coaching or like a psychoanalytic point of view, you know, I guess I tend to be more interested in kind of like the individual's ability to tell a story. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what really shocks me and what really was kind of a game changer for me was uh learning that people they see stories externally like you know the story of religion the story of christianity right it played a big role in my life as well you know there's there's a story that i was telling myself and my culture that i was uh, embedded in i also came up with personal stories that were you know in some part based on that those ideas and they became internalized i didn't have the ability to See that those were also stories that I was creating and putting in place. And so, what's interesting is that I think a lot of people stories are fixed; they're very hard to change. So, when you when you look at it from kind of your perspective, what do you think is the biggest uh, barrier to changing people's stories, or people to well, consider other people's stories?
1: I I think you keyed on something. You know, this idea of stories are difficult to change because they become a default narrative. Yeah, you know where it's something that we fall back on. I mean most most people are, are are very busy, right? You know, even if even if they're busy doing nothing. In our world, you know, even doing nothing these days is, you know, labor intensive if yeah. if we mean just people trying to escape. Um we have all these devices around us. We have these things competing for our attention. Um a lot of people, especially as things are getting more and more difficult, or working multiple jobs or have other responsibilities, you know, so default narratives operate in a way for us to just fall back and not have to think too hard about things, you know, because they, they, once again, they tie the world up into a nice little bow. And I'm not saying that to be condescending because we all have default narratives. In fact, if you look at studies of how stories operate, um, the more educated people are, quite often, you know, they have a much stronger default narrative. I think about anybody that has a strong ideology in which everything frames their world. Um, you know, political ideology, I'm talking about, but you know, maybe an economic ideology or whatever. Religious, once again, you know, the more that we get, you know, educated in a sense, we're being, you know, wrapped up in a story. Um, so it's very difficult to break from that. Um, to get people to think about that often, you know. You've you've got to work to almost confront certain things, and and people do not appreciate that. Obviously, if you start challenging and questioning their deepest beliefs, which I totally understand because it can be a painful thing. You know, going back to when I lost my religion, well, um, I didn't lose it. <laughs> I walked away from it. Sure, um, you know, it was a frightening period. And there's been other times in my life where I've had all encompassing ideologies that I thought, you know, explained everything and which I almost developed an arrogance about. And, you know, I walked away from those too. And it's difficult. It's painful. And once again, it leaves that, that, that kind of void, but it's what we do with it. You know, there was a whole move when, when I was in, in uh, going through college. It was called deconstruction. You It yeah. was a form of French theory uh, that Americans probably appropriated very destructively. <clears throat> and the whole idea at that time was we're just going to dismantle everything that has meaning and authority. And, you know, you can't just do that. You got to approach these things with a reconstructive mind. You know, so I almost thought of it as reconstruction or deconstruction, reconstruction. You know, if I'm going to go in, I'm going to problematize things. If I'm going to question things, I'm going to think about it. I've got to be prepared to start developing narratives, you know, which can come in and act as, as, you know, once again, a way of making sense of things because we can't, we're, we're, Well, we could, you know, we could develop a complete nihilism, you know, in which the world has no meaning. But I think productively or sanely, you know, uh, problematizing that word, you know, in a medical sense, but, you know, productively, we need some kind of guiding stories. We need something that makes sense of our world, something that gives meaning to us. Um, I know because I've, I've lost meaning, you know, multiple times in my life and it's very painful and it's hurtful not only to me, but to other people, because, you know, it, it becomes a destructive force. You
0: know, one of the things that occurs to me, I had a professor in college who really <clears throat> opened me up to seeing other other stories. Um, and I, I guess I'm curious because I remember feeling as though um, overwhelmed by the potential points of view out there. And I felt like I kind of like lost myself, uh, you know, like it's like, okay, well, how do I really feel about this? I'm wondering do you run do, do students run into that as they kind of have their minds opening and then how do you how do you coach or or guide them through that process?
1: Well, I'm not going to lie and create a false story that I was always this way, you know. I, I I you know early parts of of you know being a grad student and perhaps a, a professor you know, it was pretty arrogant in my knowledge, you know, I was here to, to enlighten people, you know, I was going to teach them the right way of thinking about the world. And as I said, I walked away from those type of thought patterns, you know, because who am I to tell people that this is, you know, actuality in a certain sense, you know, I have some freedom because I'm a humanities professor. I'm right. not teaching somebody how to do surgery. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I don't have to say this is the absolute <laughs> way to do it. And I have a lot more freedom in that sense, which I, I truly appreciate. Um, But I try to, you know, and I have students that write about things that that I find personally or ethically abhorrent at times, you know. Uh, I have difficulties with, um, whether it's just the way that they're thinking and or, you know, the things that they're talking about. Um, But, you know, I view it as as not my job to indoctrinate people into a certain mindset or a certain way of seeing. Instead, what what my job is is to inform students and teach them how to build their story once again, how to understand other stories and to have an awareness of how these stories construct a certain viewpoint and what are the possibilities for other ways of seeing, you know, uh, different ways of, of thinking about an issue. Um, I think a basic thing would be say, like if a student's going to write about homelessness and they start making broad claims, you know, you just try to, you know, introduce them, to you know, a wide variety of of you know viewpoints of what is the cause of homelessness, or you know what could we do to solve homelessness, and on down the line, yeah. um, and, and in particular to avoid dehumanizing thought, you know, in which we ignore the actual humans that are that are a part of this, yeah. um, and always remember that there's multiple perspectives, right? You know, the homeless problem also involves people, you know, that experience the homelessness within in their areas. Um, so there's all kinds of perspectives on what it is um, and, and why that problem exists. Um, so I guess I, I don't even think of myself as a teacher. I think of myself as a facilitator. Yeah. If that makes sense. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm here to point, you know, here's ways to do research. You know, here's way to, ways to construct arguments and think about these things. Here's a lot of things that you can, can should consider. I have a, a guide that I wrote up for students, you know, a guide for cre- critical thinking about the world. You know, and, and I try to get them to question just the way that we gather knowledge, the way that we learn about things, the way that the world constructs these stories. Yeah. You know, we live in a heavily mediatized world. You know, it's constantly you yeah. don't know how many times anybody looks at their phone, at their computer, you know, listen to music, you know, off, off the various devices, podcasts, films, TV, you know, it's just insane the amount of information that's that's piling on us. And how do we parse that information and how do we become aware of those default narratives again? A classic example, I guess, to, to give you a more concrete thing would be I had a, a, a student that was just so passionate about becoming a social worker. And you know she she just thought you know she was going to do really great things in, in the field, and you know I, I really admired what she wanted to do, and especially you know as you pro- definitely know, going into social work is a very uphill struggle um, throughout your whole career. And she wanted to write a paper about how great Anne Rand is. Um, now we've got some serious cognitive dissonance going on on here because Anne Rand hated. Any social, you know, system like that, you know, government yeah. support up until she needed it when how she got old she, and infirm. And the student crossed that bridge. How, what was she? What was she? I would watch her. I would be like, OK, you know, here, let's study Ayn Rand and, and the theory of objectivism, you know, and think about it. What are your core values? You know, I, I did not tell her. My opinions on Ayn Rand. I did not try to, you know, convince her of anything about Ayn Rand. In fact, I kind of pulled back from that. But instead, what I said was, let's listen to the stories that Ayn Rand's telling. Let's listen to the stories that, that you've developed about the world and let's put them into play and think about it. You know, yeah. the student at the end, of course, rejects Ayn Rand and you know engages in a critique of her. Um, I think that's a very important because once again, I'm not indoctrinating her into a thought system. I'm not pushing her to, you know, think about a thinker in a certain way. I'm just saying, let's think about this. Um, I, I would say a classic example of that as well. That's that's more recent is I had a student, uh, a young male with the had a kid who had gone through a divorce and was very bitter about his wife, and um, you know, thought that she had gotten unfair judgments in the divorce and and you know, possession of his child. And so he wanted to write an essay on the dangers of feminism. You know, he felt feminism had uh, corrupted his wife and was persecuting him as a male. And you know, there's there's plenty of people that think this way, right? We, he wanted to build all his arguments off YouTube videos of people say like Jordan Peterson, um, you know, things like that 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 were doing you know just rants about feminism. And I was like, well, you can do this argument, but what you're gonna to have to do is read feminism. And he was very startled. And I was like, you can't critique something without learning the stories and the own words of the people that are making the arguments. Yeah. And, you know, I've had had this happen a couple of times, but this particular student really impressed me because he was like, okay. And so I, you know, much like I would have been in grad school with my professors, I, you know, helped him gather some sources. That we're going to be primary sources about what feminism is. And it was interesting. He didn't completely abandon his ideals, but he really he brought him in in a much more thoughtful manner, in which he learned about what feminists think and care about, and he actually gained respect in a certain sense, you know, for the arguments. Even if I don't think he completely, you know, changed his mind. Sure. Um, and I think I think what what I'm trying to work with. And I think a lot of us are trying to work with is a toxic notion of argument. And argument, I think of it as storytelling, right? Yeah. Um, In our society, if you think about media, you know, where you have certain media figures that scream at people, tell them they're stupid, they don't know what they're talking about, or politicians, or, you know, whatever, you know, that they're ignorant. Um, um, This is a toxic form of argument. Or even if you think about the, the pinnacle of arguments, right? Oxford debate team. Yeah. You, know, you have a winner and you have a loser Sure. and that's not the way arguments work. It's not a progressive way to think about argument, you know, and I try to tell my students that you can totally lose, you know, your argument in that, that Oxford style sense. But if you plant a seed in there, you know, the seed can take root and maybe the next person that that is approached, you know, from that viewpoint can cultivate that seed a little bit more. All you're trying to do is get people to understand where you're coming from Get them to listen to your story and see where you're coming from is a powerful form of argument. You don't have to demolish people's, you know, uh, deeply held beliefs. You don't have to defeat them. You don't have to embarrass them. You have to degrade them. You know, we're trying to get a much more positive understanding argument.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's powerful, because when um, the last election happened, I was researching. I was starting to feel you know, kind of a boiling and, uh, and the undercurrent of my family dynamic because of differences. And I, I was like, I, I'm choosing not to let this affect my family, but I felt like it was going to, and, and I ran, I, I ran into a couple of different things, um, which I've thought of why you were kind of talking about arguments here. And number one was, uh, if you're going to change somebody's mind, you have to already believe 98 to 99% of what they believe. Otherwise, it's almost impossible to do. That really shows when you have these kind of algorithms that are driving people, you know, on YouTube and Facebook to, you know, harder left and harder right positions, for example, you know, then you have all of a sudden they might believe 50% of them you know, and then it's just one side versus another. And so I also thought of that when you said you can't be neutral on a moving train. I guess what I, thought, I think is interesting is that we somehow have to learn how to be with people who have different opinions than us. That's kind of what you're saying there too. So if I'm on, a, if I'm on this moving train metaphor and I just say exactly what I believe, you can kind of guess that the person next to me is only going to believe 50 percent of what I say. I, we can't influence each other in as far as an argument. based on, you know assuming that research is true. Mm -hmm. I consider how much I should voice my opinions on things and and there's a balance on what good that's going to do versus, you know, if people are just going to put you in categories. I think kind of the theme of what we're both talking about here is you're saying that you are, the kids in your classes are understanding the power of argument and that they don't have to tear the other argument down. And I think, I think that's powerful. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Um, First, I'm just going to clarify this in case any of my students see this. they're They're adults. (laughs) I said kids. Uh, I know. And I I often say kids too. And I, I, a colleague of mine said, you know, that's probably pretty insulting. So yeah, I just want to say they're adults. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, in, in hearing you say that, and I was thinking about
0: myself to yours, your students, (laughs)
1: um, it probably wouldn't bother me. I'm probably overly conscious on it. Um, (laughs) I was thinking, you know, it's it's absolutely true, and this is the difficult thing about, you know, doing argument or telling stories that people are not familiar with. Um, I, I show films, of course, in my film class all the time, and I have students say, you know, I I don't like this. This is, doesn't represent my reality. You know, I hate the film, and I'm like, you know, I'm like, do you only watch films that are exactly about your reality? Is there <laughs> something more here? And I, I think. The like good storytellers, whether you know they're a novelist or filmmaker, or you know, or something in the arts, or you know, a politician or you know, whoever's trying to get people to think about things, you know, a good storyteller is really interested and involved in translation. You know, you have to be able to translate things into people's reality. You know, a good speaker always able to read the room, right? You know, uh, and to understand. And Takes the time to learn about who they're arguing, you know, with, yeah, or you know. And once again, we're not talking about the toxic form arguing when I say Mm -hmm. that. Um, So that's what we're always trying to think about here. You know, who, who am I trying to convince? You know, what is their reality? you know, learn about these people, you know, like the student that wanted to argue against feminism. I'm like, well, the first thing we gotta do is, is learn what feminists say. Right. Yeah. You know, cause otherwise your, your, argument's pointless and it's not doing anything. And translation is also bringing it, you know, into a certain language. <clears throat> a great friend of mine, you know, when I came out of grad school, you know, I, I wrote and talked like a, a you know, critical theorists from grad school. Yeah. A really convoluted way with everything highly cited, you know, i down the line and no, no everyday person, much like when I had to read French theory, they're all going to read whatever I was writing and go, oh, this is poppycock, you know? Yeah. That's just, you know, showing off or writing in a way, you know, <laughs> just to impress people. Yeah. And I was trying to write for a newspaper, uh, a friend of mine that was doing a community newspaper and he just, he just lumbasted, you know, he laid into me and said, what are you doing? You don't know what going to want to read this stuff. Yeah. You know, you need to write in the vernacular, of the people that you're trying to reach. <laughs> yeah. It was a great lesson, you know, in that sense to, to, to remove a lot of that stuff. You know, I wasn't working in that you know, writing in that environment academic, you know, I didn't need that. And the people that were reading what I was writing in the, the paper we're not going to, you know, tune into that, They we're going to stop after a paragraph or two, not because it's hard for him, because it's just pointless, you yeah. know, when you're, when you're writing in that, that, you know, type of form. So sure. once again, you know, translation and being able to bridge cultures or different ways of thinking, you know, or let's just hit to the art of the matter within our culture, that's split 50, 50, say in a political sense, you know, if you were talking to somebody that's on the other side of the political divide, you got to put things into, you know, their cares and wants and needs. You know, you can't sit there and just hammer away at them thinking, well, you know, I'm right. And if they just hear it enough at times, <laughs> they're going to believe me because that's not going to happen. You know, you're just self-defeating in a certain sense. Um, a great example for me was during the Bush years, Bush 2, yeah. um, say post 9-11. Um, and we can see this going up, up all the way to this contemporary time going through the pandemic. Within the scientific community, they started to panic, you know. Um, We had a president, Bush too, who claimed he only read one book in his life, the Bible, which I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but, you know, maybe you would want to read something else in your life. Um, And, you know, they were worried that they were losing the public battle and And communicating science information, because scientists often talk in jargonistic ways, much like I did as a critical theorist. Yeah. there was a whole movement around science framing uh, matthew nisbet n i s b e t t was the person that I was paying attention to, and it was really you know pushing this idea of science framing, you know consciously developing scientists that are good speakers and writers. They can reach the public through newspapers or go on to TV and talk in a way that they understand because, you know, that default also operates with a sense of shorthand, right? You know, when you use emotional language, you can shut off people's brain real quickly. You know, well, that's going to threaten your job, right? Well, you know, I don't want to lose my job, right? You know, immediately you're not going to even listen to what the issue is because it could be an economic threat to you whether it is or not is a you know question to ponder and discuss, but if someone frames it that way, immediately you just shut it shut the other side out. so scientists had to learn how to reframe things to translate it to everyday concerns. you know it's not just enough to say climate change is an existential threat, right? yeah, you have to put it into language that people are going to care about you know how is it an existential threat? you know will this also you know, if I'm thinking on one hand, could this threaten my job, but what is the effects of climate change in an economic sense? You know, yeah. and to bring that in there and get people thinking about it. So I, I think, you know, constantly, you know, and that that difficulty of getting your stories out and getting people to think about your stories, translation is a huge, you know, aspect. Um You know, oftentimes we think of translation as, like, say, a novel or or a literary work, you know, being translated into different languages. And that's the same thing. If you've ever read different versions of translations, they're radically different. But I think translation can be people operating within the same language system and just being able to get their ideals, you know, communicated clearly.
0: The way the story is told, the way it's translated, that's a way to kind of widen that gap, you know, to make it maybe you know, if you tell a story good enough, maybe you only have to believe 90% of what the other believes.
1: Yes. And absolutely. And I mean, for anybody that's concerned about stories, never underestimate the small gesture of of greeting, you know, of communicating. I like to think of it as, you know, with within our culture, you know, when you meet somebody new, you reach out and shake their hand, right? Yeah. Or I guess, post-pandemic time, fist bump, <laughs> you <know>? right, right. <laughs> shoulder bump, um, you know, that doing that as a form of gesture in your, your conversation, your are writing, you're signifying to your audience. Yeah. I see you. I know you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm greeting you in a certain sense. You're reaching out to them or, you know, I talk to my students a lot about this. I'm like, you know, I tell them when, when I would write, I would hear in my head, you know, and and I wrote in a lot of my college classes, I oftentimes, you know, had very different ideals than my professors and I would write papers that to totally challenge my professors. And so I would hear their voice in my head saying, yeah, but yeah. And so when I heard that, yeah, but I stopped, I did not move on. I addressed it, you know, and it's a powerful thing. I've had people that, that write or, you know, say watching a video or something and I'll be sitting there going, this person, excuse me, this person's full of shit. You know, they don't know what they're yeah. talking about. They're totally illusionary. And they'll literally stop right at that point, And they'll backtrack and they'll say, you may be thinking. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> they read my mind. And boom. I've had that experience. i become much more open to what they're saying. You know, <laughs> because I'm like, they were self-reflective enough. They were self-aware enough that they realize that other people see this differently and they're going to take the time. I mean, that's, that's a pretty powerful gesture. it's a pretty powerful form of storytelling, you know? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Kind of moving on from, from argument here, because mm-hmm. I, I think the, the thing that was most illuminating for, for me there was that, you know, yeah, the way that you tell an argument, the nuances, the way you greet, the way you know your audience, the way that you communicate to them before you start translating the story um, that can gain you some ground with convincing them. Um, and I think that that's, that's really powerful, but um, kind of, you know, going back to our, our larger discussion of, of stories um, in your curriculum that you, how did you, how do you design your
1: curriculum? Um, I teach two, two different film classes. One's intro to film studies and one is uh, international film studies I think of it as like world cinemas. Um, and then I teach the English 102 courses, which are, uh, I think of them as argument and rhetoric. Um, you know, you have the English 101, which is teach the basics. And then English 102 is, you know, how do we construct a college argument? Um, for about 15 years, I taught peace studies, but I I psychically broke during the Trump years, um, simply to, uh, I just couldn't pay attention for a bit and I needed to step away. So I haven't mm-hmm. talked about that for a couple of years.
0: When you're thinking about where you came from and your understanding of the power of stories, when you think about your international film course, I'm curious, do you, do you have like a theme that, or, or are you just, you know, are you trying to bring a, a broadening of, a broadening of stories or different types of, of stories or um, yeah, I just wonder what your thought process is around creating that.
1: Yeah, I I do have a theme and it's it's probably a, an extremely broad theme. You know, sure. I'm I'm really interested in the human condition. Yeah. Um and I broaden that out when possible to even think of non-human entities, you know, you know, so we get other perspectives. Say a classic one of a non-human entity that's in a very powerful story is my octopus uh teacher. Have you seen that documentary? I have not, no. Oh, my God. You should I, You should write this down. <laughs> my someone, else teacher, Netflix. Huh? someone else recently suggested that I watch that. It's it's one of the most powerful uh, documentaries I've seen in the 21st century. I'm just floored. I've watched it multiple times, showed it to students, showed it to my parents, you know, people across the board. It's just like yeah. whatever their perspective is because you learn – you know, uh, through the eyes of the person making the film and his relationship with an octopus, you learn about you know, you know, we don't have to go to outer space. We don't have to create you know entities that are fantastical. We have beings on our planet that have such radically different experiences from us, and to learn those things is so powerful. You know, um, it's it's yeah, it's a really interesting thing. But for the class, I'm, I'm very interested in different ways of, of exploring the human condition, um, you know, especially in an international film studies class. So, you know, we go, we get films from around the world that are exploring, you know, very powerfully different aspects of what it means to be human in this, this world. And, you know, there's once again, always this cautioning of, you know, we're watching a South Korean film to, for my American students. You know, this is not a South Korean way of thinking about the world. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a perspective of a filmmaker creating a story about you know his society, his or her society. Um, it's not you know this is South Korean society. Uh, a great example would be uh, City of God from Brazil, you know, which is about the favelas, but you know is, is couched in the classic uh, crime thriller narrative. Even though you know it's it's based on uh, actual memoir, you know, I try to caution my students. I'm like, you know, this is not. You know, what it means to live in Brazil and, you know, or even a favela, favela in Brazil. And if you, uh, extras on DVDs are always great. If you look at the extras on there where they do an actual, uh, I think it's notes from a, a personal war or something like that. I forget the exact name, probably just bungled that, but it's, it's the documentary on there is more important than the city of God. You know, because it goes in there and interviews the people, and it gets you to think about, you know, I just watched this film, City of God, that's supposed to be about the favelas, but it's really nothing about the actual everyday people that live there and work there. It's about the criminals and the police, you know, and what happens when we lose those narratives of those people that live there? And we could think about the same thing within our inner city environments that, that, say, suffer from crime. You know, what happens when you frame it all as this just big cops and robbers type thing and you ignore the everyday working people that make the, that place their home? You know, what are their cares? What are their interests? I mean, we're seeing a big rejection of the Democrat Party right now because they don't pay attention to the narratives of, the, of people that live in those areas. You know, they just seize on certain things. And Republicans, you know, good or, good or bad, are, are paying attention to that and talking to them, you know, about certain things and attracting them, we're seeing a huge swing along those lines. Yeah. Um, you've got to pay attention to the people that that you're, you know, creating these stories about. Yeah. And I shouldn't introduce the whole Republican Democrats thing, because that's nowhere I want to go right now. Me neither. I'm, I'm also, I'm working on right now for my, my film class, which for me is very fascinating. Um, there's this whole movement on weird studies, which you know looks at at weird narratives and the stories they tell us, but I'm also c- combining it with this notion of monster theory. You know, what do monsters you know uh, represent for us? You know, yeah. What do they serve as a metaphor, or you know, what are the stories that we tell? You know, classically horror stories, or you know, I'm talking about horror films. Classically, up until 1968, you know, they were a pretty conservative storytelling form. One of our most conservative ones, you know you had this this sense of normality you know of of the productive society and intruding other a monster you know or or monstrous force threatens that that you know community culture whatever, and then everybody has to come together and fight against this, and generally at the end it was defeated, right yeah, and then we have something like uh <clears throat> Invasion of the Body Snatchers, or Night of the Living Dead, uh, especially Night of the Living Dead, where at the end of the film you're walking out, and you're just like, spoiler "Alert!" <laughs> yes, alert! I won't <laughs> tell exactly what happens, but you're walking out of it, and you're just like, um, "Excuse me, what the fuck?" <laughs> you know, you're like, you know, you're shaking. You're like, "Oh my gosh, what just happened?" Yeah, you know, and you're 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 just stunned. You know, or if you think of something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre where, you know, he's spiraling with the chainsaw, even though the girl's getting away in the back of that truck, spoiler alert, (laughs) um, you're you're still horrified and the terror of that moment has not dispelled. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so, you know, I'm curious about how these things operate, you know, to tell stories because you can kind of think of horror as this unconscious, this layer below, you know, our conscious, you know. And I'm not saying that, that, you know, these things are magically doing it, but we see a lot of that unconscious things, things that are repressed, right? You know, we've talked about this. We, you know, we repress our shadow, yeah. the bad things that we do, and we try to pretend a, it's not taking place, or we just try to hold it in and not let it out. It comes out, you know, and it comes out in powerful ways. And oftentimes we see this happening in in horror. Um, we could see that during the, the Bush and post-Bush two years, you know, with the whole aspect of torture, we, you know, we were torturing people in prisons throughout the world and, you know, we're ignoring it or in, in Guantanamo primarily, and we're ignoring it. We're pretending that it's not happening. And all of a sudden you have this whole sub-genre within horror in which torture is taking place, you know, or something like, like 24 on TV with uh, Jack, where, you know, you see them saying, well, I have to torture him because otherwise he's going to blow up these people, you know, and making justifications. These things come out in you know, a kind of unconscious way or can be conscious you know, where people want to explore it. <clears throat> so I'm really that's what I'm really interested in these days is, you know, how do these weird, you know, that uh, once again, I, I can't help it, but say these words. So we, yeah. we call it the mind fuck genre, you know, yeah. films films that literally play with your head. A classic one for me would be something like Fight Club, you know. I mean, when I walked out of that film, I literally stumbled coming out of the door, you know, because it had played with my mind through innovative editing, also with the the narrative of the, you know, narrator. And, you know, you don't know certain things, and then you know certain things. And when you get to the end of the film, you literally got to play the whole film over in your head and or watch it again. Memento being a classic thing, or Sixth Sense, yeah. you know, where all this narrative has been playing towards a certain thing, and the effective, you know, storyteller has convinced us that this is actually what is happening. And all of a sudden, that curtain's ripped back, and we're like, you know, just literally catching flies because our mouth is wide open, and going, "Oh no!" <laughs> you know, really? Yeah. And you have to once again reprocess it. So I'm, I'm very interested in how films like that operate.
0: When you present these to your students, um, which, which of the, the stories do the students seem to have the hardest time kind of adjusting to or, or maybe perceiving or maybe uh, assimilating into kind of their understanding of
1: the world? So there's not, there's not one type. <clears throat> I would like to say teaching film courses yeah. is one of the, the most powerful things in my life. Because, yeah. you know, every semester I walk into my courses with a group of people that have different life experiences than I do, you know, have different identities, you yeah. know, grew up in different countries or different cultures, you know, all of these, you know, we can just map out, you know, what our, our different aspects are. And we watch films. And, of course, a screen is like a big mirror to us. You know, there is a narrative that's being produced for us, but it's also reflecting back our reality. You know, all stories and all art work in in this form. You know, once again, that's where a good artist or storyteller, you know, is able to translate and and think about you know how these stories are communicating because you don't have power over how your story affects people, right? You yeah, know, anybody should recognize that. And so, I'll be in a classroom with people, and they'll see things that I don't, right? You know, maybe they they come from an identity that that's not a part of mine, and they'll be offended. You know, and, and I'll be like, well, how could I have missed that? Why didn't I pay attention to that? You know, I think about that, you know, or, you know, say a classic one for me was we we're watching a, a, a film from Spain and a student walks up to me and says, well, you know, that macho guy that was in there? And and I was like, yeah. And the student says, well, he had an Argentinian uh, accent. And the student told me that was probably intentional, you know, because of Argentina you know, for the student had a very macho culture. And so that it's immediately coding the ah. person within there. Yeah, you know, this is an Argentinian, of course he's gonna be, you know, this way. Sure. Once again, for people from Argentina, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the student believed that. <laughs> um, you know, we can see this this constantly in that, you know, these classrooms that how that works. Um and, you know, I see uh, I'm not gonna lie, I cried during films. You know, I cry yeah. quite often during films. They're very powerful. You know, there's the whole theory of, you know, a darkened environment. You know, your your brain opens up very, you know, sure. for certain yeah. things. And stories have always had a, a strong impact on me. You know, so I can cry, I can get angry, I laugh loudly during films, sometimes inappropriately, which makes people <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, and I see it also with my students, you know. I remember, or not even in a student sense, I remember a classic example of me was Schindler's, Schindler's List. Yeah. I'm assuming most people are familiar with Schindler's List.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah. So
1: the first time I went and saw this, this movie, Schindler's List, um i went to a crowded theater i mean it was literally every seat sold it was in southern illinois you know the whole place was just it was an event right it'd been out for two weeks this was like this is a must-see film you know almost like you had an obligation to go see it um and i was in there and we're starting to watch a film about the holocaust right And there's people with, like, big tubs of buttered popcorn. You know, they're slurping on their coats while we're watching people being marched off to the, you know, the trains. Right. You know, to take them to the Holocaust, you know, the classic scene where it's all in black and white. You got the little girl in the red coat. And, you know, later we see that body, you know, it's the only thing with color on a pile of of corpses. You know, and, and I'm just, I'm literally being physically revolted by this mass consumption of these, you know, these, you know, confections while the worst aspects of, of you know, uh, human violence is going on up on the screen. You know, it's sickening in a certain sense. And I'm not saying this to, to you know, shame or condescend towards people. I'm just saying me, I was physically revolted by it. But at a certain point, I look over in front of me, and there's an elderly couple. And, I mean, it's just like, even thinking right now I get shivers by it, you know, because I'm totally out of the movie, you know, I, I can't, I just, I'm almost ready to get up and leave. And I look at this elderly couple and they're, they're holding on to each other. They're shaking, you know, they weep. Yeah. And I started thinking, yeah, what is it? Yeah. So, did they have relatives? Did they experience these things? You know, why is it affecting them this way? I mean, these people are not, you know, consuming this thing in that that pleasure titillation sense. This is deeply disturbing to them, and it brings me back into it, you know. And I start to experience it in a different way. I remember walking out of that theater and thinking about, you know, how are these big budget films, so what are the problematic? So even even Spielberg wanting to make this film, and how many people are going to argue over the different aspects. And then I don't I don't know if you remember. But later on, this is the only only film that I know of that was ever presented commercial-free. And we we did it, you know, it was a couple of years later, and I was at Bowling Green at the time, and I was doing the cultural studies, popular culture uh, master's degree. And it was going to be on TV. There's going to be no commercials. So it was being funded by a whole people. I think it was Exxon. Exxon was trying to uh, rebuild, create a new story, right, sure. <laughs> about yeah. their image after they had uh, polluted through that that oil spill of the tanker, yeah, uh, Exxon Valdez, you know they were trying to rebuild their image, so they fund, you know, this commercial free showing of Schindler's List, and there was an Oklahoma uh, politician, I think it was Tom Co- Coburn, I could be wrong, um, who was trying to get the the screening stopped because there's nudity in it, and you know there's no way that nudity should be on TV, and you're like, <laughs> this is your problem about this film. Um, uh, but so I gather with a group of cultural studies students, you know, we sit around a TV and there's food at this as well, but it's all food that's, that's made from the different cultures. You know, we had an international, uh, uh set of students, you know, and so this, these are things that are handmade. Everybody's, you know, coming from different disciplines and we're all commenting and discussing on this film. You know, so it once again alters the way that I perceive the film. And I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm belaboring this because I think we need to think about the different ways that we experience these stories and how it could radically change. You know, you have the spectacle within the theater with the, the heavy dose of consumption, as well as the, you know, re-traumatized couple that are experiencing the film. You know, later I sit and watch it with scholars and you know, in a more intimate setting with lights on, right? You know, where people are discussing the historical aspects. Um, the third time that kind of really also you know impresses on me the different aspects of stories is then I'm teaching the film at at uh, Bowling Green State University, mm-hmm. and at the time, my students kept saying, you know, there's no way that this could ever happen again. You know, this is this was the pinnacle of human evil. And we'll never have a genocide like that again. You know, the, nobody would do this ever again because we're aware and we know these things. And I'm really struck by it. And, and you know, I'll be honest, I was kinda of horrified by it because, you know, I was like, you know, this is a gap in their knowledge of the world. Because this is not the only time. It's still, you know, these things are still going on and they're gonna happen in the future. And and you know, at that time they started uh doing the South African truth and reconciliation hearings. Um, where um, the leaders Nelson Mandela yeah. uh, of South Africa at the time said the only way we're going to ensure that we don't have holocaust deniers you know with with our reality of of you know the crimes or you know brutality in South Africa is if we get people to come out and testify and open and the only way to do that would be to say if you are honest and testify about what you did, we will not come after you And it was amazing. I remember, you know, watching this with these students, you know. So I brought it up in the class, you know, taped some of the the sessions, and we watched it. And it opened their eyes to the fact that, you know, these things still go on. This is not the only... You know, time that this has happened, we need to be aware of the capacity within our society for these things. And it was amazing to see people, horrifying and amazing to see people up, get up and talk about their story of what they did, you know, why they did it and how they, they carried it out. I mean, we had literally people talking about the problematics of burning bodies, you know, and talking about drinking beer and having barbecues while they're doing it you know that you once you hear something like that you can't unhear it you know in a certain sense you know these things happen the students then begged me to watch schindler's list again you know they felt like they hadn't paid attention to it they felt like that you know that you know they needed to to rethink it and we had other stuff we were supposed to do but i was like yes let's watch it again let's talk about it and you know this time you have a whole classroom they're like actively taking notes they're wanting to debate this film. They're wanting to think about it. You know, these different ways of seeing things, you know, are are amazing, you know. Um, and stories live a long life, you know. I mean, they change throughout time. They can mean different things for different people. Um, it's Halloween right now, so I've been rewatching or you know, spooked over, not Halloween yet. But I think <laughs> of all I think of all of October is Halloween. Yeah. I mean- um, it's Spooktober, as I call it.
0: <laughs> spooktober,
1: and I've been I've been rewatching films from my youth. Yeah. you know, and it's it's kind of interesting, you know, to think about what what was it that appealed to me, you know, what was it that I find you know uncomfortable <laughs> that I liked it then, and you know uh, what still appeals to me and why. Uh, it's it's always a good exercise to revisit some of these stories.
0: You know when you think about like the structure of of a story, like that what what gives it staying power, what do you think that is? Is it just that it's relevant to our experience or it it allows us to access a deeper understanding of you know our history and culture and consciousness? Uh, I'm curious to your thoughts on that.
1: Well, I mean there's multiple things, right? There can be stories that that really plumb you know, the, the human condition as, as loosely as we could say, you know, some aspect that can speak to different people at different times or different people across cultures. Yeah. But, you know, we shouldn't, of course, ignore the operations of say the culture industry, you know, that makes certain things, you know, of a sense a high art that we must consume or we must, you know, engage with and other things they ignore, um, one of the great things about, you know, when I did my literary studies is, you know, I studied books that that were dismissed, that were ignored, you know, say like Moby Dick um, or the works of Joseph Conrad, you know, that went in and out of favor and yeah. could have just been lost in the dustbin of history. Or you think about Shakespeare, you know, Shakespeare was, you know, at his time, that was a degraded art form, you know. It was, you know, it was on the outs. They wouldn't even let it in the city, right? Yeah. You know, and they only survived through patronage. And, you know, we easily could have lost Shakespeare at a certain point in time, um, but we didn't. You know, what is the operations that keep those going? No doubt Shakespeare's, you know, stories are powerful and, you know, have a huge effect. But there's a lot more at play, right? You know, yeah. when we start teaching it, you know, everybody should know certain aspects of this then it also, you know, has an effect. Same thing with museums. You know, what do we put in museums? What do we consider art and not art? Yeah. I think it's very important to consider in the power of those stories. Um, and, of course, certain stories speak to us at certain times, right? You know, maybe it, it had an impact at that time that we're like, wow, you know, we're, we're really dealing with this right now. And maybe 20 years from now, people are like, you know what's the big deal you know or it's just not a concern of theirs; it's not on their radar so you know things that can be very much of the the moment don't always survive you know like other things that, that can be a little more universal or speak you know broadly across cultures um think about what are the major stories of our time you know in a in a cinema sense yeah global universe right you know Um, and I try to, it it helps that, you know, I, I took those classes in popular culture. Um, but you know, I tell my students, we got to pay attention. What are these narratives telling us? You know, I always, you know, probably something like an older person, I'm always like, you know, these stories make me nervous that people are consuming it because in my mind, it kind of trains us to believe that we need a super being to come in and solve the problems of the world which yeah. i don't believe in you know i believe you know for my perspective you know the power of the people you know it's it's people coming together to affect change collectively that that truly is the powerful thing but you know this that's not the impetus of a marvel you know film we never see that in operation Um, Probably the closest would maybe be Wakanda with the Black Panther, where we see a whole society working together from the margins. But, you know, still, these are superpowered beings. You know, I think it's too easy for, and and I'm going to say this word very, I'm not trying to make a claim that the Marvel Universe (laughs) is, but it's easy to fit into a fascist narrative of, you know, we need the big authority figure, you know, to come in and save us and to tell us what to do.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. Um,
1: I'm probably going to get all kinds of hate mail now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's if anybody's listening, Michael.
1: <laughs>
0: no, I, think, I think that if, um, for whatever reason, the the Marvel universe, I I know very little of it. It just, because of exactly what you just said, it doesn't appeal to me. I'm much more interested in... You know, how does an everyday person, you know, make magical things happen? That's one of the things, like, right now, like, I I, I want to bring up Star Wars because that was the original, like, to me, that was the epitome of Hero's Journey, right? It was mm-hmm. uh, that whole way
1: through. That's but Joseph Campbell.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, Luke Skywalker has this special power. And I was like, okay, that's like one story. And now it seems like everything in the Marvel universe has to do with a, you know, and they kind of twist it and turn it different ways, but I'm like, okay, but how do you do that? Because I I thought that there was some kind of analogy or metaphor there about, you know, uh, individuality, you know, as that kind of superpower there. And so I don't know. I, I kind of look for that narrative, elsewhere outside of that superhero. Um that superhero. It's fun to to watch, but I I guess I watch movies as kind of like a an act of self-discovery. Mm. <laughs> and so if it doesn't seem to uh to hold that promise for me, then I, I really um <laughs> I'm not into it that much. Um an example of that is one of the things that I really one of the shows I really love and it's not because of the plot or anything like that was HBO's Westworld. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really interesting about that is, is I had the realization watching people on screen that, oh my gosh, they're just, they have a bunch of robots that are in these loops and we're actually in loops too. There are stories, right? And so what happens if you decide, oh, you know what? I don't like this story. Uh, Maybe I can change it. And like learning how to do that, that was exciting for me, but realizing, but watching a character on screen, it wasn't the plot or, or the creativity or the, the fancy special effects or anything. It was watching an actor portray this experience of, wow, I'm, I'm in a loop just like we've basically built models of ourselves and w- that's what we've learned from ourselves. How come, well, you know, what is the process of change? I'm coming up on a theme here. I can't really name because, um, you know, what I kind of said is, you know, we have to really agree on a lot before we can move somebody to one side or another. And it's the way we tell a story. And once we realize we're telling stories, then we have some empowerment over our own story, right? And then how does that extend into the the greater culture, the greater world, you know? So students who are watching, um, you know, the second time around, you watch Schindler's List. How are how are they taking that into the world? You know that's what I'm. That's what is interesting to me about stories. You know how are how are they taking that into their lives? How does that play
1: out in the next generation? This will probably sound bad for a person that's that's teaching things, <laughs> yeah. but my concern is is not that they they get a profound you know awareness of Schindler's List. My my concern is that they get a profound awareness of how films like Schindler's List frame a certain understanding of the world. Wow. So for better or worse, for a large majority of people, Schindler's List is the Holocaust. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's people's, people that don't read histories or, you know, people that don't Although we do have Discovery Channel, or not Discovery, whatever the uh, the channel is, it's now military history. You know, obviously they get a lot of Holocaust stuff from that. But, <laughs> you know, for, for a lot of people, that film, especially people that were alive during that time, becomes... The image of the Holocaust. And I want, want people, not just my students, I want anyone, you know, that lives in this culture that's operating in this culture to develop an awareness of how they become, once again, that frame. You know, Schindler's List is the Holocaust. City of God is a Brazilian favela. You know, uh, the, the parasite from South Korea, you know, is what it means to be in a class warfare and, you know, or poor or rich within South Korea, you know, on down the line, these things frame a certain awareness of the world. The MC universe, boom, frames a certain awareness of the world. And I should mention to people, I don't hate these films. You know, sure. They're quite enjoyable. I don't think it came um, almost like you did. It's, it's more the dominance, you know, of the films that I that it problematized for me. But, you know, my my intent is to get them to understand how these narratives are framing certain aspects, you know, of reality. Or becoming that default study, you know. Um, Even with my awareness of something like, say, City of God, if if someone mentions Brazilian favela, boom, that pops in there. Much like, you know, because I'm no longer a fundamentalist Christian, it doesn't mean all that training and all that, those, you know, belief systems disappeared. In fact, I've crumbled in a shower before, you know, thinking, oh, I'm going to hell, (laughs) you know, because that's like decades later stuff just does not disappear. It's in there. You know, these things are powerful framing stories. We, you know, we need to understand how they operate. And especially, you know, when we think of these stories in a much more broader sense, advertising and marketing, the way that they, you know, manipulate us. Let's, let's just not, you know, beat around the bush, advertising, marketing, public relations. There's a constant, you know, manipulation of, of of our reality and the way that we perceive it—politicians, religion, professors, you know, psychiatrists, whoever, your parents—you know—these mm-hmm. stories. And and I don't I don't mean to make it sound like you know a paranoid conspiracy thing. It's just we're, we're humans are storytelling creatures, and the 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 best defense we can have in that is to understand how these stories work to construct a certain sense of reality. You know, they whole, have this whole movement called social construction of reality. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people get really offended by that because, you know, they're like, this is extremely relativistic. You know, you're trying to say that, you know, there's no no underlying reality and, you know, it's just what we tell ourselves. Yeah. And I try to tell them, no, that's that's not true. You know, that's not at least what I'm trying to say. Maybe they, you know, they are extreme relativists. What I'm saying is we operate in an actual reality that has certain, you know, aspects that we can't deny. Here's that mountain there, right? You know, we know that mountain is there. But what does that mountain mean to us? What are we going to put to use of that mountain? You know, and why? And what are the stories that we're saying of why we do what we do to that mountain? Do we blow it up to get the ore that's inside it? Do we keep it as is? Do we cut down all the wood? You know, on down the lines, does it have certain spiritual meaning for people? um, you know, these stories are important and, you know, to be able to break down those stories, I think is, is the key.
0: When you think about times in history where, and and I don't want to name anything specific, but let's just say that there was, there was, uh, you know, the powers that be, whether it be, you know, governments or, you know, um, leaders of certain groups or religious leaders or whatnot. Um, when, wh- when they've told a story, right. That, that has kind of led people to um, you know, do things that now from a historical point of view, we look on as evil or wrong or, or, you know, tragic, whatever. What do you think causes us to be susceptible to those types of stories?
1: Uh, a major thing, obviously, is fear and anxiety. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. let's, let's use a, a great example. 9-11, you know, when 9-11 happens. I was a grad student at the time at Illinois State University. Um, I remember, I, I mean, it was striking. First off, you know, of course, extremely traumatic time. Um, but I woke up. I, I was in college, so I had a party at the night before, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I'm hungover, you know, I'm going to do some research, and I got to teach classes that day. So I'm I'm walking into, you know, the college Starbucks to get my coffee, and I'm picking up my coffee, and I turn around in the big auditorium. There's just, like, all this noise, and people are just, like, you know, yeah, gasping, in and, you know, they're seeing what's going on. It's on the big screen in there. And I walk in you know, because of, of my training and we always got, you know, Hollywood debut movies, you know, these for like test, test audiences. And uh, so I walk in, I think it's the latest Hollywood film and I'm literally seeing the planes fly into the towers and people are just like gasping I'm And I'm like, I'm loudly saying, what film is this? And people look at me horrified. Right. You know, because I don't understand what's going on and they think I'm being insulting or disrespecting or something and you know i'm stunned when people tell me that this is actually happening and i had to go teach classes and i was teaching a a class at the time it was my practicum i had designed it that that summer and it was terror in american culture oh wow yeah you think about that oh my god and and i had all these students (laughs) that, that were like very annoyed at me because i was making them look at different aspects of america and how people experience terror and how they cope with it And particularly, I was, you know, exploring, you know, class issues, race, you know, gender, things like that, you know. Um, And, you know, the students, they were just rejecting, they were, you know, resisting. Of course, this happens and it changes and I have to go in and teach that class. And I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking about the narrative, you know, because immediately we start to hear these were monsters. You know, these were evil men. We can't understand why they would do something like this. You know, this is the, the the most, you know, extreme violation of American, you know, sanctity or, you know, uh, the nation state or whatever we want to do. You know, it's a patriotic affront. And immediately you start hearing the war drums start to, you know, and I'm trying to question that not only in the class, but also, you know, we were, you know, having, you know, rallies for people to getting together and trying to resist this whole whole movement to war. And I kept asking, you know, my students, as well as when I would talk to other people, I'm like, who are these people? You know, we can't simply call them monsters. You know, this is part of my interest in monster theory. So once you label something as being monstrous, you totally erase everything that was a cause. You know, what is our responsibility in these people coming to attack us? You know, it takes a lot for people to get in a plane and kill themselves. Why? You know, what led to this? For people to be shipped you know, or, or moved halfway across the world to do something like this, consciously. Yeah. Um, same thing, you know, going back to the Schindler's List thing, you know, the problem with, with a lot of these things, and I think Spielberg does a good job of, of you know, uh, problematizing it as well as falling vic- victim to it, you know, um, is that the Nazis become like this epitome of an evil with no cause. You know, like these were everyday people, you know, um, if you think of someone like Eichmann, you know, when Hannah Arendt goes to Jerusalem and she's watching this person and she's like, it's a bureaucrat, <laughs> you know, it's not like some vicious warrior, you know, uh, you know, he's just a bureaucrat that had no comprehension of what he was doing. Yeah. You know, he knows what he's doing, but he really doesn't, you know, in a certain way. He's not thinking it through. You know, this is just yeah. this is just an opportunity for promotion. Um so I think it's really important that we don't, you know, immediately start to label people this way. <clears throat> our government, uh, you know, used, obviously, 9-11 to get us into the wars of terror. You know, they, through the Patriot Act and and other things, you know, increased our military, you know, once again, got us into other countries to to disastrous effect. They used fear and anxiety, you know, to do that. Of course, the media was complicit in that because they ignored a lot of things that were happening. Sure. You know, so I, I think, you know, to go back to your original question, a lot of that, you know, is, and you can look at, at things like Goebbels, who, who you know, was the Nazi, you know, propagandist Yeah, he talks about. You know, how do you do things? You start to talk about the nation state, you know, the threat to it. You mobilize people through fear and anxiety. You do a lot of repetitive things so they don't really think, you know, it just becomes a default thing. Um, we were well primed before 9-11. If you study in film studies all through the 90s, yeah, Muslims or people from the Middle East were primary terrorist figures. You know, so the American people already before nine eleven happens, you know, they're programmed. So you have that fear, anxiety, and you have that previous constant, you know, kind of unconscious programming. These people are terrorists, you know, and you easily are able to mobilize. I mean, our whole society bought into this, right? Yeah. You know? yeah. Anything was acceptable. And then you have something like I mentioned this early earlier, twenty-four, you know, the yeah. TV show. You know, I where, I
0: love that show when it came out.
1: I yeah, watched where, it. and it's justifying torture into you know, the worst possible things. I mean, these people knew narrative; they knew what they were doing. They were it was a it was a powerful you know narrative, and it it definitely hit a nerve. But you know, I, I don't see how you could look at this thing and say they're not legitimizing torture as a necessary evil which, you know, was the whole rhetoric of the, the Bush administration at that time. If you, you know, you look at the uh, the briefs that were written and things like that. <clears throat> so, yeah, I don't know if that necessarily answers it, but definitely, you know, to get people fearful about things, you know, and anxious about things. That's why I think right now we're at a, a very problematic time, and I think it's really important for us to pay attention to these stories, you know, whether they're ones that are coming from our entertainments or the ones that are coming from, you know, supposedly a place of reality. Um, you know, we are experiencing a lot of fear, anxiety, you know, economic insecurity. We're seeing huge class differences. We're coming out of a pandemic, a global pandemic. You know, we have fears of other ones taking place. People will have extreme doubt and all authority throughout our society. You know, these are huge, like I talked about when I walked away from my religion, these are huge voids that are easily filled by the simple story, you know, yeah. that can construct a certain way of thinking and have powerful effects on people. We have to be able to question these things. There's a there's a great <clears throat> piece of graffiti that I have a picture of. It's I think it's in Detroit. And it's scrawled across an abandoned building and it says, you know, speak truth to power, even if your voice quivers. Yeah. You know, and, yeah, you know, well, it's hard, hard sometimes, you know, think about, you know, when we we're young and we we're in our little peer packs, right? You know, our little cliques. Yeah. That person is saying something and you're thinking in your head and you're going, that's wrong. You yeah. Know? And this is like the charismatic person that everybody, you know, say, Johnny. Everybody's like, Johnny knows, you know, and Johnny, you know, rules your little pack, you know, to say something is threatening. You can be thrown out of your group. You can be punished. You can be beat up, you know. I have a crooked nose for a reason because I ask inappropriate questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, these things. They're difficult. Now I'm not saying I don't do it all the time. There's many times where I wisely sit there and say, I'm not going to say anything, you know, because at this point in time, I don't see what it's going to do, you know, and there's no immediate threat. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But uh, even if it's just questioning in your head, I think it's important, you know.
0: I think human beings again, kind of going from the psychological level, you know, we, we view life through two lenses. There's like the fear lens and there's the goal lens, right? And and I think the thing about the fear lens is that, you know, it's based on kind of a survival instinct, you know, it's scanning for danger. So, you know, it kind of rewards us for finding things. And so it seems like kind of what you're saying is that, that when these, when stories that feed that fear lens um, you know, that's been primed a certain way, uh, that is really what causes us to be susceptible to stories that that may lead us astray.
1: Absolutely. Let me use a a, a more general example of how that yeah. operates. Do we need more police in America? Right? Yeah. Is is, you know, an ongoing debate, right? You have people that that through the Black Lives Matter movement that initiated the whole idea of defunding the the police, mm-hmm. which I think is misunderstood because it's not, they're saying we don't need police or law enforcement, although a lot do, but definitely don't need this much, right? You know, we need to defund this as a default thing. Once again, you have people that are like blue lives matter, you know, we need more police. Our nation's under assault. Crime is running unchecked. You know, if we have no police, there'll be chaos and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, where where are these things shaped you know is there an effect almost in my entire life nonstop every night there's been police shows i mean if you looked at at tv classic tv right yeah. you know up yeah. until now almost predominantly the number one figure within shows are some form of law enforcement and if you think of things like the law and order days if you remember when it used to have Law and Order like three or four times a night, I don't watch TV, so I don't know if these things are still on. Yeah, um, but it it literally, you know, and each of these shows, you know, I I you know watch them and I was like, man, these things are depressing, and these are like the worst crimes, and it's like you should watch this day in day out, and they have something like your nightly news, which if it bleeds, it leads type type mentality. Yeah, or even worse, you know, 24 hours of CNN and Fox and MSNBC. Uh, Where it's just constantly a circle and people leave these things on all day long, right? I've been in houses like that. I'm sure you have. You know, it's programming people. And we have loads of psychological studies on this, sociological studies, where they study people that consume a lot of these type of media. And they're generally more fearful about the world. They generally believe that they need police. Well, of course they do, you know, because the world's a dangerous place to them. You know, as opposed to people that don't consume this stuff all the time, you know, keep it at least to a minimum. They don't, they don't perceive the world as a, a world of chaos, you know, and violence and nihilism in which you need armed people to protect you from all the time. Um, I think this kind of works with that, once again, shaping people so that are willing to accept anything. I Meaning, you know, the heck with money for your schools and your hospitals. Whatever. We need more law enforcement to protect our property.
0: Backtracking a little bit, the one when you were talking about earlier on, we were talking about how movies made people look who looked a certain way or seemed to be from a certain country terrorists. I remember I went back and watched uh, one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. I don't know if you've seen it. Iron Eagle. Mm. It's completely ridiculous. 80s movie Mm -hmm. kind of akin to top gun this kid's dad is a fighter pilot and he gets shot down and becomes a prisoner of war in some middle eastern country and they never named the country or anything but it's so obnoxious in its portrayal of the quote-unquote bad guys that i couldn't watch it again i couldn't (laughs) I, i loved it when i was a kid because you know the kid you know Steals uh, an F 14 and goes and saves his dad with the help of a rogue. You know, it was like this great, uh, you know, father son mentor type. And I was totally, I watched it from an adult lens and I could not enjoy it at all because it was like, it was so ridiculously over the top with how they portrayed the quote unquote bad guys who were in the Middle East. One of the things that I've done in my life is I just, for better or for worse, I don't consume. News. I I feel it clicking on that that fear switch, if you will. Maybe ignorance is bliss. I was watching the news one day, and there was a kid in Cincinnati who who his parents were selling fentanyl and had fentanyl under his bed. He he, he then must have ingested it or it got on his skin or something. And all you got to do is get it on you. I was like consumed with that for like days, and I'm like, okay, I'm not watching the news anymore. There's there was a time where I would watch. Fox News. And I would just be like, oh my gosh, these people are evil. And there's a story coming from both sides that makes it impossible for anybody to reconcile or be able to to gain their own perspective of reality. It's been curated and translated in a certain way that you know, if you hear this side and this side, you can't figure out what's happening. One of the things I hear from both sides in the police argument is why would they call it? Defund the police? Defund the police, yes. Yeah. Get rid of all police? That's ridiculous. Yeah. You know. And on the other side, it's like Blue Lives Matter. It makes it sound like we really don't care about Black Lives Matter. Just You know what I mean? It just seems like how does somebody who's who's listening to these arguments on both sides – Make any sense out of what's happening?
1: And I mean, both of those terms show poor storytelling. Oh okay. yeah. You know, I mean, someone should have should have said, "Do we really want to call it defund the police?" You know, because you would you would know immediately you're just going to na- alienate anybody has a different idea. Same thing with the Blue Lives Matter. I yeah. mean, you might as well be be you know putting your clienthood hood on and and saying White Lives Matter right. because that's all that people hear when you do yeah. that. So you know. I mean, if we're talking about story, once again, both of these are, are failures in a sense, because all they're doing is, you know, entrenching those that, that already believe what they believe and alienating anybody that has a different different viewpoint. Once again, not to uh, demonize either side. I'm just saying, you know, yeah. the thought of, of what the story is. I, I think, you know, I mean, one of the things I struggle with as well as, you know, within my teaching as well, you know, we need to understand why people have these differences. So, say, you know, and I and I, I, I uh, taught you know things about how clothes, you know, communicate certain things. You know, the power of the uniforms. You know, why? You know, for a long time, because to my experiences as a youth and being harassed by police, um, sometimes violently. You know, when I would see a police car or somebody in a police uniform, I would react very negatively. You know, it was just ingrained. That was my experience, you know. and But then I would also think, why do certain people, they'll say, police are our friends. And I would look at them like, "And you're extremely naive and stupid, which is not true because those people are saying that to me. Police are their friends, yeah. <laughs> you know, in their neighborhoods. Police sure. are there to protect and serve rather than what they were in my neighborhoods. And so we need to understand, you know, what is the reality of why people perceive these things, you know, and what is it rooted in so that you can speak to it, you know. Yeah. You know, it's not enough for me to say we should defund the police and you're an idiot for believing police your friend. Instead, I would say, yeah, let's talk about how are police your friends and how are they not other people's friends? And, you know, vice versa, because we're we need to explore, you know, both sides of this this coin and question some of the assumptions because all police are not bad. You know, I would say even a majority of police are are positive people trying to try to do things to help people. Yeah, always you know, have to talk to students, you know, when I would teach those peace studies class and we'd look at police. Law enforcement, you know, and the stories, you know, that I was talking about that are being communicated in popular culture, as well as the way people perceive them. And I would have somebody yell at me, my uncle's a, a law enforcement. And I was like, well, we're talking about systems here, you know. And I would tell him, you know, I think our education system in America is deeply flawed and destructive in many ways. But I'm a professor. That doesn't mean that I don't believe, it, you know, in the power of the system or, you know, the abilities of the people that operate within it. What I'm talking about is the destructive nature of the system. Um, Once again, that's clarification of your story, you know, communicating. You got to be very aware, you know, people are going to get pissed off when you label things. And, and, you know, the way that we label things, once again, that, that whole framing conception, defund the police or blue lives matters. It boxes something in and everything else is excluded. And that's a very problematic way of doing things.
0: Uh at the same time you have the problem of you know people's attention span and as you said they're they're busy and, and everything else, so they're looking for ways to to simplify it. Yeah. And these kind of frame stories do that.
1: I don't know. Have you ever heard of Noam Chomsky talking about concision? I've heard of Noam Chomsky, yes, but what yeah. was the term? Concision? It's C O N C I S I O N concision? No. So he, in uh, the documentary Manufacturing Consent, as well as other places, you know, he's being interviewed. I, I think it was, you know, somebody on mainstream TV, a rare time that Chomsky appears on TV because, you know, here we have our leading, you know, critical intellectual and he's almost completely absent from, from corporate media, right? You don't, you don't see him in there. They just ignore him. And someone asked him, they said, well, why do you think it is Noam Chomsky that, that you're not invited to, you know, cable news shows or, you know, network news, things like that. And he starts to explain the idea of concision within, you know, the media. And he uses the example of an executive, I think it was maybe NBC News or one of the, the big three network news. Mm-hmm. And the person's talking about, we don't invite someone like Noam Chomsky on because we want somebody that's able to frame an issue within 10 to 20 seconds. Right. Yeah. You know, think about this. Yeah. That's easy to do if you're supporting the dominant accepted viewpoint of society, right? You can just come in there and very effectively, because everybody's just going to go, yeah, that's how it is. (laughs) If you're coming in and you're challenging the most deeply held beliefs and, or, you know, say pushing against this patriotic notion, you know, because Chomsky of course is a critic about our military empire, you know, coming in, and challenging some of, you know, our most patriotic notions, you can't unpack that in 10 to 20 seconds. It's virtually impossible because you have to be able to establish that connection with your audience. You have to be able to explain the situation and you have to be able to challenge these deeply held narratives. Um, It's very difficult to do that. That's why I think, you know, cable news, especially, um, but also network news, you know, you know, outside of, say, local news reporting um, is very destructive because, one, they always present us just one story. Um, you know, we always have to be, you know, pay attention to the danger of a single story. There's a great, I can't remember her name right now. She's a novelist, but it's a TED talk called The Danger of a Single Story. I highly recommend anyone that listens to, to check this out. Um, but she talks... From perspective of her culture and the way it's been framed within a Western narratives, you know, what is the danger of that single narrative when it becomes dominant and becomes the only way of understanding something and pushes up against this ideal of there's one story? You know, we need to have multiple stories. You know, we need multiple ways of seeing things. This is probably my my biggest objective. You know, with people? Yeah. And to simply say going back, you know, to art one oh one where you start to look at an object from every different angle, you know, get up on a chair at the table and look down at it, get on from the ground, look up at it, move all around it. It's what we got to do with the stories that are important to us in our lives, we can't accept that one single story. We have to look at things from a multitude of ways. The more ways of seeing and perceiving in my mind, you know, from people that are different for me, the more important. Um, and along those lines, once again, if if you're gonna tell stories and you're gonna challenge people's stories, you better know their stories as good, if not better, than they do. You know, I always think of that, say when I talk to people about Christianity, you know. I I read the Bible front to back seven times, you know, I I was gifted all these, you know, dictionaries and encyclopedias and did biblical research. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a powerful thing to be able to talk to people about that religion. And have that knowledge, you know, and know what you're talking about. And my, and just so nobody mistakes, my intention is never to disabuse people of what their belief system is. Sure. It's simply I want them to understand what their holy text says. You know, read the book, know what it says. And if you're going to talk about it, make sure you're doing it from a position of being informed.
0: Kind of transitioning from framing the larger narrative of culture and and arguments that exist within our culture what what do you think the role of of film well I guess film and stories will kind of we could say film because you know that's kind of where you a lot of your knowledge lies what role was it played in kind of personal empowerment
1: well I think from the early stage when 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 I was young I was extremely shy and uh, bookish yeah, I have no idea if this is true, but, you know, I've dealt with, with students that have various levels of autism, you know, and looking back, I have no idea if somebody would diagnose it, but it seems like, you know, I may have a low level of it, you know, in my behavior system. And especially how I, I had to learn literally, you know, we all have to learn how to be social beings, Yeah, but I, I truly latched onto things to learn how, how to be, you know, not just a quiet bookish person that sits over in the corner. You know, I had to learn how to behave in a certain sense, and so you know, modeled a lot of things on the narratives of my time. I was growing up in late seventies and early eighties culture. Probably not the best time for for a young male to be learning <laughs> 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 to be a male through popular culture. <laughs> um, but you oh, know, wow. better or worse, that's what it was, yeah. and you know, I was being that very quiet and shy person, I was, I was raised in a fairly rough and tumble working class neighborhood where, you know, being a male was, you had to be aggressive, you know, had had to be quiet. You had to be tough, you know? Yeah. Uh, So I didn't know how to do that stuff. So I would watch Clint Eastwood movies, you know, especially the spaghetti Westerns, you know, the man with no name. And, you know, to me, not being a real tall person, I'm five, eight now, And I've always felt much smaller when I was a kid. It seemed like everyone towered over me, you know. So here was this, to me, this cinematic God, you know, this tall, confident, quiet, you know, uh, powerful, masculine figure, right? And so, you know, I I watched and modeled, you know, that steely stare, doesn't over-talk, you know, says what's necessary and is a man of action, you know. And I, I just started modeling that, you know, within you know, my my interactions with the neighborhood, with people that, you know, had a tendency to want to pick on a small uh, little bookish kid. Sure. Or, you know, Jack Nicholson, you know, and his behavior is something like, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know, manic, crazy, in people's yeah. face, laughing. You know, yeah. <laughs> same thing, you know, we'd model these things, you know, it would learn how to do it, you know, to push myself until, and this is where these when this is unreflective, unref- until I did these things without even thinking about it, you know what I mean. Instead, yeah. I became these things, you know, that I pretended I was. And it, and there's a great quote from Kurt Vonnegut in Mother Night. I don't know if you ever read it.
0: I read Mother Night. No,
1: it's a story about a guy that works as a, a double agent for uh, Western forces during the uh, the war with the Nazis, and okay. he's pretending to be a a radio host that's supporting the Nazis.
0: Mm, okay.
1: And, you know, the whole thing is he, to protect himself, he has to totally, you know, do it and not pretend not to be it, right? And, you know, of course, the story is afterwards, you know, everyone thinks he's the worst monster in the world because he was accelerating this stuff. And Vonnegut says <clears> at <throat> a certain point in there is we have to be careful what we pretend to be. You know, what are the stories that we tell about ourselves, you know, because quite often we become those things without really, you know, fully understanding and we forget that we were someone different. Um, you and I have talked a lot and you know that I'm trying to get back, you know, to that. Uh, I don't know if we can call it authentic anymore, but, you know, that, that more original Michael. Yeah. Um, a person that was much more open to the world, you know, much more sensitive and hadn't, Pardon um, my exterior. Um, you know, if we're going to think of stories, you know because in dealing and I know you deal with with people that have trauma and difficulties in their life, um, Pete Floyd's the wall, of course, is like a very classic example for this. you know it gives me the visual sense of it, you know, these bricks that are being built around you know an individual and walling them off, you know in a certain sense. You know, each thing that happens to him becomes another brick that goes into this wall, this outer shell. Um, You know, I've been really thinking that through. I saw Roger Waters this year, and, you know, I've always been a Pink Floyd fan. So I've been thinking about this, and and what are the ways of, of bringing down the wall, or even better, you know, what are ways of building windows, you know, uh balconies, you know, doors. Yeah. So people can come into my my little villa. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> come in, see Michael. Yeah. It's the real Michael. <laughs> you know, um, this is a lifelong thing, right? I don't think it's uh a person that you and I like Gabor Mate. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I'm mispronouncing his name. Um uh, the great I think I think the great Hungarian fine. uh their therapist is getting us to think about addiction and trauma. Um, I was listening to him talk and you know, how old is he? 78.
0: Yeah. 78 years old.
1: I was just struck. And, you know, I told you I was listening to him on uh, Joe Rogan and I was like, I was kind of disappointed because, you know, with Rogan's perspective, you know, the first half of the, the like three hour show is all about drugs. And I was like, this is not really, you know, yeah." Monte. I mean, it's important what the work he's doing, you know, with psychedelics and stuff, but that's not, you know, what I want to share about Monte. But the thing that kept striking me about Monte is over and over, he's saying, 78 years old, he's one of the wisest persons I know about these problems, you know, of trauma and healing from it. I mean, he was a kid in the Holocaust, right? Mm-hmm. Abandoned by his parents. Mm-hmm. Um, he keeps saying over and over, I'm dealing with this. I'm still doing it. I still fall into these patterns. I yeah. still you know listen to these stories. People can incite these reactions from me still to this day. And I'm like he's one of the most self-conscious, aware person about how these stories shape our lives. Yeah, and yet he still is susceptible to this. He still has to work on this. He's still, you know, is struggling with it. And I didn't find that a negative thing. I didn't find that frightening or anxiety inducing. In fact, listening to his story about that was one of the most powerful things I could listen to. Yeah. You know? Because here's somebody that I respect and revere and he's going through the same things that I am. And I think this is, this is a really important thing where you're know, going all the way back to where I I said, you know, that shell of when I was young. Yeah. The, building of the wall is I pretended that these things don't affect me. Right. That, you know, I don't have traumas, that I don't have fears or anxieties. I'm trying to present myself as, you know, the the classic calm, cool, collected, you know, man of action, you know, because that's what society tells me I'm supposed to do. And I think that's detrimental to us, you know, because people need to hear, you know, that we go through these things. There's that whole movement of um, where they would tell Um, young homosexual children or teens that are going through traumatic, you know, experiences of people hating them or discriminating against them. And, you know, they would say this gets better, you know, Um, I, I think that's a powerful message. And, and my only problem would be, you know, it doesn't necessarily get better, but the struggle is worth it. You know, if you can make it through, the struggle is worth it. And we need to be able to communicate to people that we're not perfect beings you know, we're not superheroes in the Marvel universe. Yeah, you know, we're flawed. You know, and well, deeply flawed.
0: I think one of the distinctions that Matei made in the myth of normal, which I guess I knew, but again, there's a certain power in putting language behind it. Was there, there are two separate paths: healing and cured. He's like, you don't, you don't go on a path of healing necessarily to get cured, right? It's it's a path that you continuously are on, and that really resonated with me. I was like oh this is this is a process, this is a lifestyle of healing and that that really described my experience
1: yes absolutely that's that's what I mean. I mean, to hear him say that i mean it just it really lifts my spirit, you know, yeah, because um we were discussing this not too long ago, you know, I felt defeated, I felt disempowered almost, you know, was angry. Well I was not almost was angry at myself. And yeah. so I was like, I'm dealing with this at my age. You know? Sure. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, how old am I? And I'm sitting there saying, Who is Michael and what the hell is he doing here? And, you know, how have I how have I got to this place as talking head said, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um it was, you know, it was demoralizing. And to hear somebody talk about that, it really lifts the spirits. Um, yeah. I can't I can't recommend him enough to know to people. I, I know you did it with your book club. Yeah. Which is great.
0: I, I just, for whatever reason, I, I hadn't heard of him before the kind of promotion for this book came out. But when I, when it, he just, there's some people and... Mate is just one of them that can very um, succinctly like 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 the phrase of you know cured versus healing. He just can put things into new conceptions that it's like I'm already using, but the language just makes it easier to hold cognitively or whatever. And he just. One after another. When I was listening to the first, he was on. Um, I believe I heard him on uh, uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast first. I didn't know who he was. It was like the myth of normal, whatever. And I going about my day, and I was listening to this, and I, I just stopped and was like, "Who is this guy?" Everything he was saying, you just was. He was dropping universes of information. I was like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" Let me think about that for a minute. You know, like the idea of stories. Like I didn't have that story before. I guess it's not. I guess I understood that healing didn't necessarily lead, just for the sake of example, to being cured, but making the distinction between the two is a story I had not applied. And there's just so many others as well. Another one that really came from that book for me was what what we can understand about ourselves now, we do with language. And he's like, however, there are traumas that we carry that have a very, very large impact on our life today, that happened to us or we experienced before we had language. And so if you're an infant and say, you know, let's say like in his experience, he was in the Holocaust. So, you know, if he's experiencing the fear of his mother, you know, they're very sensitive. That relationship there is very powerful. Um, He doesn't have words for that. The only thing he can do is cut himself off from his emotions. And so this becomes a generalized practice that, followed him throughout his life. Anytime that he felt fear, he would, he would stop feeling emotions and it kind of generalized to other things as well. And I was like, what, that makes so much sense. I mean, uh, it's just almost, I don't know if that's been said elsewhere before, but that was the first time that I would come across something that simply put that was so powerful.
1: And it's, it has been said elsewhere, but once again, it's the way he puts it, you know, yeah. that I, that I really relate to, and especially, um, Mate, tells things through his personal experiences quite often, you know. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like an abstract theorization, you know. Right. He talks right. About his experiences, he talks about people that he works with, you know. He talks about their experiences, and you know, he's always making it a human story rather than just abstract theorization so that it's much more graspable, you know, grasp, uh, graspable, graspable. <laughs> um, you know, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, you know, when people tell stories, I, I like to hear how they're involved in these stories. Mm-hmm. You know, um, probably my biggest gripe quite, quite often, you know, with a lot of academic writing that I had to read was it always just seemed disconnected from human experience quite often. Um, you know, once again there's a lot that I like about it but that was a huge problem and I want you know my stories to have you know a direct correlation with you know the human experience yeah even if even if it's a marvel superhero film sure yeah, yeah <laughs> or, you know lord of the rings or whatever you know and you know i can watch lord of the rings And it probably says a lot about me, but I look at Gollum sometime and I'm like, oh, yeah, there's plenty of times I was sitting there going over (laughs) the object, you know, (laughs) it's going to change my life.
0: It's funny that you bring up Lord of the Rings, because for what I think I was 21 when that book came out and I, I had read, I had read the book. Reading was a struggle for me even then. When I saw the movie, what comes up for me right now is that you had mentioned Translation right? And what I was struggling with at like 21 was, okay, I see that I have to do all these things. I have to find a career. I have to go to school. I have to do all these, but, but why? And so the Lord of the Rings it was like, okay, it's about like the people that are around you, you know? And then, so you could say, yeah, it's about, you know, this little, this little kind of short Type of person that lives in you know a, a remote part of the world who decides to do this you know take this ring that's going to tempt him in every single way and destroy it okay that doesn't seem like a very interesting story to me but you know, <laughs> what what's really interesting about it is his journey and how his kind of relationships how, what he did with those and who he listened to and how he thought about that and like I just remember for me it was like I could have named my friends and family to, you know, I, I was, I was overlaying them to all the characters there. And it seems almost really um, trivial of a lesson to learn, but I didn't have, I didn't have any way to understand that then, you know, and it was just, it really brought home. Wow. Oh, wow. This is why these things matter. You know, it just, it was able to, to highlight those things for me. And so that was a really popular movie. And then, an adaptation on the sci-fi channel of Children of Dune around that same time. It kind of took some artistic license with the book, which I had read and, and like really, I read multiple times Dune. I something in that just really resonated with me. But in in that in that show, you know, the one thing that, that Leto too, like he's like the, the son of, of Ma or you know, the, the the hero from the first movie. What yeah. What he sets out to do is no one understands. And everybody's like, it's what? I mean, it was almost, and they don't really explain it in the book. You know, you set out to make himself invincible 3,000 years or 10,000 years, I think it was. I can't remember now. When, When you see the humanity of this task that he has to do that no one understands, that theme really resonated with me. I don't know that I see that that theme in, in particular in a lot of popular movies now. Um, but I think the theme of, like, family uh, being the purpose of, you know, wh- wh- supporting you to do the hardest task of your life and family and friends and community, um, that really resonated with me. But anyway, just to share share some of my ideas here <laughs> about uh, stories and personal empowerment.
1: I, I don't know how, how much you got into it, but I mentioned that series, Like Stories of Old. Yes. On YouTube. Um, for those that don't know, <clears throat> there's what's called video essays. Is where people analyze or explore films through the medium of video, which is a much more dynamic way, right? If we read an article about a film, that's great, you know, and you can have stills. But when you tell your story about the film, you know, through the medium... It's, it's much more powerful in a certain sense. And the person that's doing, uh, unfortunately, I feel bad. I don't remember the name of the person that's doing it. But once again, on YouTube, it's called like Stories of Old. First it's doing this amazing job of looking at ethical issues and psychological development and, you know, myths in the sense of myths that we identify. Say like, you know, the warrior mythology or something like that or the magician, you know, <clears throat> um, speaking of Lord of the Rings, right? You know, prime yeah. figure. And he's just doing a really great job and, you know, talking through actual psychological theories of how these films communicate certain meanings to us. And I think it's a great example where you say, you know, you don't know a lot of films that are doing that. <laughs> you go through his his uh, body of work on this site, which, I mean, you know, I don't know how many there are. There's dozens, if not close to 100, you know, videos on there, yeah. you know, where he's quite clearly showing, you know, this is a really rich environment in which to go and explore these stories. Um, I think it's very important. We haven't really touched on it. And I think it may be the nature of you and me not saying, you know, that we're doing this intentionally, but we have to think about, you know, what is the effect of your story not being told in a cultural sense? You know, groups yeah. that are marginalized, groups that are discriminated against, Cultures that don't have world power, you know, various identities, you know, what is the importance for people to see people that look like them, that think like them, or, you know, that have same cultural backgrounds as them being represented? And what is the effect if it's not represented within their society as large? Not only for them, but for other people or stereotypically represented in just a negative way. Um, there's a great quote that I, that I share a lot. And I'll probably butcher it right now because I'm under pressure. But it's, <laughs> it's supposedly from an old African proverb. And the idea is until the lion has a historian, stories will always glorify the hunter. Yeah. You know? And, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in that, right? You yeah. know? The hunter is always glorified because the lion isn't writing the story. You know, and this is part of the problem with if your stories aren't represented. And I know a lot of people, you know, get trapped in in a fear of certain identities, but they need to understand that people need to have their reality represented within our culture. And that is very negative for them to just have it done negatively or for it to be absent. You know. Once again, you know, what I was talking about is that little kid, you know, in the seventies. You know, whatever isolated I felt, I was seeing my reality being represented to us and, or represented to me. And so, you know, what would be been the fact if I was that isolated, alone, scared young person and I felt like there was nothing that I could look to, you know, or people that, that I identified with. I think that would have been, you know, a pretty tragic thing and really difficult to overcome.
0: I'm a white male. i come with all of the... the so called you know privilege sense of privilege and all that stuff which i try to be mindful of it, it, you know to the extent that i can and is effective and i i still remember it was when uh, barack obama was elected president mm-hmm. i i at that time i was um i come from a very conservative family um mm-hmm. you know we were not involved with the democratic party and so you know i i i didn't think a lot about Barack Obama and people he represented and and you know what what he looked like and he was an African-American after he won the election he came out I was watching the news and I remember I was sitting there watching this and I just kind of broke down in tears because I had the realization that every other president that has ever been looked like me and people and for whatever reason I don't know I had this empathetic reaction, I don't know if the thought was introduced somewhere else, but that this was the first time that a large population of people had a president look like them. And I felt the power of that. It's an experience I'll never forget. I think that that empowered a huge population of people. It empowered me in a certain way.
1: Absolutely. You know, there's, there's an exercise I used to do with my students. I'm saying you used to, because right right now, you know, uh, still from the pandemic I'm teaching my writing classes online, but when I, when I had them in person, I would start off the very beginning of the classes, you know, here, we're going to, we're going to be developing our skills at telling stories, arguments. And I would start my students off by just making lists, you know, what are your identities, you know, that list, you know, who are the people that, that you, you know, admire, make that list. You know, what are the important events in your life make that list? You know, what are concepts, you know, on down the line. And, you know, this is, this is a primary thing I think in intellectual development is to start to explore those things. Yeah. What are the stories I tell about myself? You know, who do I think of, who do I admire? What are the concepts that frame, you know, my way of, of, you know, talking, writing or thinking, you know, and start to explore that. And then I would ask them, you know, we, we would take different, you know, the different parts and put them up on the board. You know, one of the striking thing always, you know, was, you know, who do you admire? Quite often are popular culture figures, right? You know, yeah. um, or politicians. And I would always be like, very few you would have the random one that would be like my mother or my uncle or, you know, my, my preacher or my coach. And it would be pretty striking how rare that was, you know, almost like they were an outlier. Yeah. Um, But, you know, we would start to question and think about that and, you know, you know, just look at the diversity of the class. And one thing, good thing about community colleges as compared to say, like I taught at university of Kentucky and Illinois state university, um, and uh, Bowling Green State University, these places, you know, the universities tend to be a little more homogenous, you know, in yeah. their background, whereas the community college where I teach now is, is much more diverse. And, you know, I've had students from 16 to their 60s, you know, people from around around the world and, you know, from all kinds of class positions, although yeah. definitely much more skewed toward the towards the lower economic scale. Sure. Um, but to have even as a class, have them all come together. And look at you know the variety of experience just within that one class. I don't know if you saw um, where I posted on our social media that we share the list of the arguments that my students had chosen for this semester. Um, I do it usually two times a semester. I just take take yeah. what their themes are and post them up for people to see because I yeah. think it's important. You know, especially as people get older. You know, I know this. I did a study of. Of throughout a century by decades you know I think it was from 1850 to, to 1950 the uh, general popular press how they represented young people and it was every generation. These young people are going, you know, they're going yeah. crazy. They're running wild. They're sexual animals. Yeah, you know, they want to get high all the time. They don't want to work. They're disrespectful. <laughs> I mean, every generation over the right. century, and I was really yeah. struck by that. And it really got me thinking, you know. And I'm, I'm kind of resistant to this story being told about younger people, you know. I I want to push back against that because I don't, in my experience, you know, these are the people that are, that are most impassioned, the most interested in change, at least on the level that I'm teaching at right now, um, you know, they want, you know, to build a different world and they want to also achieve their personal success. And it's good, I think for people, because, you know, let's not kid ourselves, you know, a lot of people that are in my social feeds are older, right? And it's good good for them to see the stories that these students are interested in that they're they're producing. You know, because yeah. it's pretty profound, I think, you know, to go through there and say, you know, this is obviously a small sample, but it's a sizable sample of, you know, young people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. I I I must have missed that somehow. I always look forward to your post, but I didn't see that one.
1: Ah, well, you know me. I'm a, I'm a pr- pr- prolific poster <laughs> at times. <laughs> but
0: That's what makes them interesting.
1: I mean, it's something to think about even in if we started breaking down all the representational power of different identities, different cultures, different economic classes, religions, whatever. But within our society, there's a certain privileged age group. And let's say probably 35 to 55 you know, it has most of the power and representational things. Although, you know, if you look at political po- uh, parties these days, you know, like presidents and people in charge, it definitely skews much older. Yeah. But, you know, we have to think about younger people quite often are silenced and excluded from this narrative power, as well as those that are much older, unless they're rich and powerful.
0: Yeah. 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 So who gets to who gets to participate with their story?
1: Yeah, how many? How many? You know, you know the countless romance movies we have, yeah. right? How many do we see from you know the the ongoing romance of a elderly couple, right? Oh, wow. You know, it's just not it's it's rare. In fact, when it happens, say like uh, Michael Haneke did a amore, you know, which looks at an elderly couple at the end of their life, you know, have have a very you know strong. You know, relationship. I mean, I remember when that came out, I was like stunned. I was like, Oh yeah, I guess we should make movies about that. Yeah. You know, I mean
0: You know, you just think, oh, a love story. Young people, you know, exactly uh, falling in love and you know, living happily ever after. You never see what happens after that. You know? <laughs> so, um yeah, I mean there's just there's there's I guess there's so many stories left to be told.
1: There is. And you know I mean, I, I appreciate uh, Campbell and the studies of, of myths, you know, blowing it down to certain essential, you know, story patterns, which, yeah. which I sympathize with, but, you know, we can span those out like a ripple in a pond, you know, and this is, once again, this is why I really appreciate different perspectives. You know, as I like to say, you know, different ways of seeing and being in the world, you know, I want, I want, you know, my brain or my consciousness in relation to experiencing the world as well as the stories that that I pay attention to to be kind of like a ripples in a pond, you know? Yeah. Here's, here's these certain things. Now here's all these different things that are vibrating or expanding outward, you know, different ways of seeing things constantly provoking and challenging me. Um, not the easiest thing in the world because once again you can become destabilized sometimes and and have deep questions. I I see people get get very kind of nervous sometimes when I talk about this. Yeah, you know, they'll be like you you doubt yourself or you question things or you challenge your you know the way you see things. Like you know that's that's problematic to them in a certain sense, if not aberrant. And certain people's yeah. points, you know, it makes me think
0: of like the Dunning Kruger effect. If you are, are acting like an expert on something, mm-hmm. it's probably because you're not. Yeah, <laughs> <And> that's, exactly. <laughs> that's the more you know, the less certain you become, and so that is that's an effect that you don't anticipate when you're gaining knowledge. Of. I'm less certain about more today than I was ten years ago.
1: You know, it's, it's kind of the consequence of of, of learning, right? You know, because the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know, in yeah. a certain sense, or how much you you've got to to know. I I think of it as a lifelong project, and and once again, <laughs> that that religious upbringing that that never leaves me. You know, yeah. so I remember as a, as a little kid asking uh, an elder, I was like, "How can I ever be like Jesus?" I was like, "He's perfect." yeah you know, i was I was really perplexed, you know I was like you know because everybody would always you know people that unthinkingly be like Jesus and I was like, Well, that's impossible, <laughs> you know he's yeah. a God, he's perfect, and the person who was who was a pretty intelligent person you know gets down you know as as you will with a little kid he, he kind of just lowers his voice and looks at me very respectfully, like you know he says that's a profound question, and he's like it's not that you should be like jesus it's like it's like an example, you know. You're trying to just model in a certain sense, you know, trying to, to you know, aiming towards being something. And I think of it in this impossible grasp of, I'm going to discover who I am. I'm going to learn everything there is about stories. I'm going to learn everything about the world. You know, I, I told you at Peace Studies, I literally collapsed and had to stop for a while because I, I just couldn't, it's too much to learn, you know. It's never, I'm never going to be that perfect being. I'm never going to, you know, know everything, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, just keep working at it, keep chipping at it, keep thinking about it, keep struggling with it as Gabor Mate, you know, is doing with his continuous life project. You know, it's, it's never, you're never going to be that perfect, you know, all knowing person. And it's kind of arrogant and, let's say, it, stupid to think that <laughs> you would be, yeah. right? <laughs> All the thrill of life would be sucked out at that point if <laughs> I knew everything. <laughs> it would be like, oh, what's the point? All right, I'm going to go jump off this cliff.
0: Yeah, you, I know. <laughs> Probably the lowest point I was ever at. Like, well, I guess I'm just going to wait for the rest of the world to learn what I already know. I look back now and it was so, um, I'm not sure what that was based on. It was based on just kind of the sheltered view of, of reality, what I found is that at that point where I thought I, I had, I knew the most, I look back, and I'm like, what you do next to nothing. I was in a process of not learning. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's kind of led me there. Um, so that experience right there has been, it's been like, okay, steer clear of that. <laughs> I always sum up like my education. Like when I, I went to college and it basically what I got out of it was, okay, there's no right or wrong. There's just systems that tell you there's right or wrong. Like going back to graduate school, nobody's certain about anything. The person who can stand in that uncertainty and project the most certainty usually is the winner. And to add on to that, what I'm learning now is the more I learn, um, and I guess I've kind of beat this point to death, but the more I learn, the less you feel certain about.
1: I I think uh, there's there's a cultural theorist named Stuart Hall. He was, he was a British cultural theorist. He he was born in the Caribbean and then uh, matriculated in the British system. Um, when when I was struggling with that ideal of you know how do you even deal with the fact that you have this radical doubt about what you know, yeah. um, he made this statement because someone had asked them you know if you're questioning yourself you know how do you how do you do this in your teaching and he was like you know I prepare to teach. I make sure that I, I know what I'm I'm going to be talking about to the best of my knowledge. I walk into that classroom with confidence that, you know, I've studied it, I've researched it, I've thought about it, and I go in there, you know, with the ability to present that knowledge, but at the same time, I remain open to the fact that I may have things that will alter that knowledge and that tomorrow I may think differently about this. Um, I think that's a, a very optimistic way to approach approach that. You know, lifelong learning in a certain sense, Uh, even experts have to be open to the fact that they they are wrong. You know, some of the people that scare me the most or make me, I I would say, maybe not scared, but kind of nervous and uneasy are those that profess to know things. Absolutely. I'm not talking about like taking this laptop apart and putting it back together. That's a technical thing. I mean, in the world of ideals and theories and, you know, things that are not cut and dry, right? You know? That, that they absolutely know. You know, yeah. we can see this in our political system. This is the problem, you know, that's dividing our country. You know, mm-hmm. we have polarized culture, and everybody believes they absolutely know everything, you know, about reality, and that the other side is completely and utterly wrong, if not evil. That's scary. Yeah, That, that produces dangerous situation, these type of stories, you know, where you start to, once again, dehumanize the other side. And I I think this, you know, in all aspects, you know, we, we do ourselves a disservice, you know, when we label certain, certain people in our society as, you know, evil, you know, or, you know, just without recognizing that there's, you know, many people within these groups, you know, and this could be people that are marginalized or people that are in dominant power. You know, I think it's problematic to simply say that rich people suck, you know, and that they're evil, you know, because I think there is, you know, something to be finessed there, just as I think that it's problematic to sit there and say poor people are lazy and, you know, stupid, you know, whatever, right? Because yeah. it's ignoring the human aspects of this and that there's a plurality of of experiences and outcomes. I do believe that there's systematic forces that increase the likelihood of these you know, outcomes, but yeah, Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: (laughs) No, no, it did. It did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And just, I want to be mindful of your time because we're coming up on uh, two and a half hours here. (laughs) You know, I guess one thing that, that I wanted to touch on and ask you in your personal experience is you've referenced several times where you've changed your story, right? Mm -hmm. And even in, in the comments you just made, you just said, I am leaving the door open to change the story. essentially. Right. Um, You know, how it's so difficult for some of us to even be aware of our stories, you know, it's some, so I guess in a two part kind of question here, you know, how did you discover the part of your story that you needed to change? And then how did you change it?
1: Hmm. Um, I think it's just at different stages in, in my life, you know. Um, like I said, when I left my religion, you know, that hugely altered the way that I, I perceived the world and, and thought about it and made me very conscious of, of, you know, religious stories. Because the first thing I did was when I left my religion, well, not the first thing, but soon after, yeah. is I went and got like a dozen books uh, about different world religions, and I started reading them. I'm a bookish person, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, so that I could, I could compare and, and see, you know, the first question was maybe it's just my religion sucks, you know, it's problematic. And once again, no offense to anybody. I, I mean that in a most respectful way, but you know, that was in my mind and maybe there was another one, you know, the dangers, especially in Southern California during that time with the new age explosion So wonder I didn't end up in a cult, <laughs> um, but you know, and and exploring those different religions helped because you know I saw that everybody's kind of got bits and pieces of reality. This is kind of what I, what I thought about in a religious sense, you know, because I went through the whole phase of atheism, you know, in the most virulent, you know, obnoxious way, and came out of it disgusted at at that aspect of people around me as well as myself, and you know, become a much more spiritual person, you know. And, and these days, it's almost like a, a panthe, pantheist or animistic viewpoint, you know, that that means that everything in reality is imbued with certain forces, probably Star Wars, <laughs> <laughs> or, or pantheism, you know, a plurality of, of different religious viewpoints. Yeah. Basically, I'm, I'm mangling the belief system, you know, that all come together to create a more unifying thing. So that kind of pushed me to start to think about not just changing stories, but you know, operating within multiple stories. And I think that's a key thing. I don't think it's just, I have a story and I might change my story. It's once again, you know, have your story. I, I think that's a positive thing. And in fact, I don't see how people could operate without having their story, right? Sure. You know, we have governing narratives, but to be open to other stories and not to exclude them. Um, yeah. And... and it's not a perfect thing because like Maté, you know, I fall susceptible to these things. The, yeah. the, the Trump years you know, impressed that on me. Like you said about how news shapes things. I, I thought I was, you know, getting a lot of information and that I was, you know, pretty radical in, in my media theories. And, yeah. you know, I knew what I was doing and I felt susceptible to, you know, being bamboozled and, you know, being, being in a controlling narrative without even saying which, which side I was in, I'm sure people could guess. Um, but, you know, I came out of that disgusted. I was like, you know, I was in a controlling narrative and I bought it all hook, line, and sinker. And to which, what I mean is I viewed the other side as reprehensible, if not evil, without even questioning what their motivations or the thoughts are that, that lead them to come to you, you know, these points. And I think that's a dangerous thing And this is kind of the impetus behind, you know, my current, current research and studies as well as teaching is, uh, I, I think we've got to open people to, to the possibilities of this happening and being aware of it, you know, so that they can defend themselves, you know, because this is how you manipulate people, people unconsciously buying in stories and not thinking about, you know, why they believe or think about things. Um, there's a reason why I started those classes off, like I said, having my students just list, you know, all the things that bring meaning into their world or all the things that they believe about themselves, because this is the first step in any type of critical thinking. You know, you've got to break down what you believe before you can start thinking about what other people believe. And, you know, if you can do it with yourself, I think it helps you in, in you know recognizing it in, in others. Um, yeah, and... I don't know. There's not any magic ritual or, or form formula yeah. for changing your story. Um, I would say, once again, just ask questions. The power of questions is, is amazing. We get it driven out of us as children. I mean, I can remember as a child, I just asked questions about everything. And I probably drove people crazy. You know, I'm, I'm in church to my elders asking questions like I told you. You know, I mean, say something like in the Bible where it says thou shalt not fornicate. So I go up and look up what the word fornicate is and simply means to penetrate. And I was like, well, the Bible is saying we shouldn't have sex, period. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. They're talking about outside of marriage. I'm like, I don't see that. Do you see where it says outside of marriage? It says do not fornicate. (laughs) And, you know, people find that annoying and they they condition you. Yeah, you're asking the improper questions. Sure. Um, quite effectively, right? Sit still, be quiet, you know, speak only when you're spoken to yeah. on down the line. And, you know, this can have effect on us. We need to decondition ourselves. Now, you should always be aware of, of situational things. It's not always productive to be asking questions, you know, all the time. Sure. times, you know, when you're not pushing at things and pulling it apart. And yeah. I think also that reconstructive aspect, of, you know, don't just dismantle your story or other people's stories, you know, think about reconstruction, you know, what is, what is my goal here and how can we produce, you know, positive aspects within our society? We could say stories or aspects or, you know, we didn't really discuss it, but I just want to throw it on the end thing. You know, we have to be really aware of non-human actors within our world. Yeah, They tell us stories all the time, you know. I'm very interested in trees and the way that they create networks underground, or I'm interested in mycelium fungi, you know, how they create their networks. Yeah. I'm interested in animals. I mean, I don't want to make anyone nervous, but I, I like animals more than humans most of the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so because I find them more honest. Um, and, you know, our non-human world has a lot of stories to tell us if we're open to it. You know and and if we're we're willing to experience it, and I think if we're shut off to these stories that it's to our detriment, and you know I would just like to encourage people to go you know watch a running river and experience it, go be around you know wildlife, um you know whatever it is, even in cities, we think of cities as not being the natural world, but walking around a city is walking through the natural world, you know just get outside, get away from your screens. Screens are, are and I did, once again, it's not a conspiracy. They're propaganda devices. Sure. You know, they're yeah. propagating certain ideals. And the best way to be able to reflect on your own narratives that you use, as well as other people's narratives, is simply to shut them off and walk away from them and go out and experience the world. And, you know, take some time for reflection. Let your mind empty out. In fact, I couldn't encourage everybody enough to just shut off for weeks at a time. You know, no social media, no screens. You know, even gasp, no phone.
0: <laughs> you know, our brains are not are not designed to be this stimulated, yeah. and so you know that's at least one of the causal factors of kind of our mental health epidemic is that you know you've got everything is giving you a dopamine rush. You know, like yes, thousand years ago, a hundred years ago, even a hundred years ago, we didn't have as many of these things happening. So one of the things that I always talk about in, in coaching for a lot of people is you've got to have time where you're, you're not activating yourself. You know what I mean? Your immersion in nature is a great way to do that. So just like you said, go watch it, watch a stream. It's uh, it is amazing how much that can impact you, how you feel, how you, you know, whether you're happy sad your your mood, emotion, your sense of focus, your kind of orientation to the world in general I guess i hadn't thought about it in the orientation of a story before, um but it really it really is because it's 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 giving us giving us it's helping us look at the story a different way. it kind of changes the frame for us, widens the frame, moves it, you know you see things in a different light
1: i'm resisting all kinds of stuff right now, but perhaps we can talk about it another time. You know, about these technologies being designed intentionally um, through the lessons of the Stanford Lab, where tech people came out and made them addictive, like a Vegas casino or operations of propaganda within our media. You know, we could go down the line, but like you said, it's, yeah, it's late in the game. That's good. To be continued.
0: Yes. All right. Well, that's that's a little propaganda for the next. That's it. <laughs> that's our hook.
1: We said. Yeah. It. <laughs> All right, thank you, Mr. Watts.
0: <laughs> of course, Mr. Benten. <laughs>